Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Real Lit, the show where a college English professor gets drunk and talks about famous literature through the ages, and a cinephile gets drunk and talks about dumbass movies that you may or may not remember from your life. And we hope that you enjoy it. Uh, sometimes we are long-winded, but whatever, you're here, so thanks. Um, so enjoy this episode of Real Lit. Okay. <laughs> I'm covering today To Kill a Mockingbird. Ooh, so, a book I've actually read. So To Kill a Mockingbird is a novel that was published in 1960. A lot of people say they read this book in high school, but it's not as widely read now, I think, as it used to be like when you and I were growing up nowadays they don't share this a whole lot because it's more of kind of like the same type of controversy as like the adventures of huck finn where racism yeah there's a lot of um the n-word is used very very much in this book like it's not like every page or something but when they talk about black people pretty much every mention there's either the n-word itself or the like nicer version of the n-word that uh they use but it, it it was written in the 1960s and the setting of the story is in the 30s and it's in alabama so it's just like one of those books that like if you were going to try to erase that word to try and still teach the novel it would honestly like seriously impact the book because it's just so ingrained in the book so people have yeah. just kind of opted to like take it out of curriculum basically and actually it's, when it's i first read way. it yeah and i don't disagree with their opinions on it like because I, I, I agree that if you're gonna teach it you need to teach it in how it's written um, oh, it's my same kind of stance on huck finn so if and i agree that if you don't think and you're not comfortable with teaching it with the n-word in it then you shouldn't and i fully support that idea and decision yeah. um and actually when i was in high school it had like just been taken out of the like high literature curriculum like right when I was getting into be a, a junior and senior and instead they put it on like they would have programs and like the AP lit courses and English courses where you had to read classic books outside of the books that you were reading for class and do like your own book reports and stuff on them so they would supplement that way they would put it on the classics list but they wouldn't teach it in school so that way it was your choice if you decided to you know read it uh you know you went in knowing fully what you were going to read and it was your choice you had a bunch of other classics to choose from you know so to kill a mockingbird is like I said, published in 1960. This novel is written by Harper Lee. Um, Harper Lee's full name is actually Nell or Nellie Harper Lee. And it was instantly, almost instantly successful as a book. In fact, only like 40 something weeks after it was published, she won a Pulitzer for it, which is just crazy. Insane. So, yeah. So, it deals with, like we've mentioned already, um, racism heavily. The setting is in uh, 1936. It is in Alabama in 1936. So it is at the peakness of 
racism, especially in the Deep South uh, yeah. area. It if you're also from another deals... country, if you are listening to yeah. this and you are not from America and you have never read anything about how just atrocious it was here, yeah. Not that I mean it's getting bad again, but how bad it, it was in the but, yeah exactly back then in the early 1900s, early to mm-hmm. mid 1900s. Read To Kill a Mockingbird. Open your you eyes. We'll find out to, real quick. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be like, whoa, that's a lot of language that is inappropriate, and everyone's yeah. gonna agree. Everyone agrees, but <laughs> it's a lot. The South. It man. is a lot. It, it is definitely a lot. And I think that that's actually one of the reasons why I taught it for a few years when I first started teaching because of the fact that we're kind of getting a renewed, you know, like second civil rights movement almost in America right now. And, you know, when Harper Lee published this, it was 1960. It was the height of the civil rights movement when she published this. And it was set in the 30s, which was the peak in the Deep South of things like Jim Crow laws and huge, bad, bad segregation, really bad lynch mobbing, like just awful, awful stuff. It's just ingratiated in every kind of like word in this book that this is a time in America where something is really wrong and it is just not the same way you would look at things today. You know, you would not read this and think, oh, you know what, that's understandable. Not unless you know what it was that their environment was like back then, Uh, which is really important because the fact of the story is that it's told by a child. So I'll get into it a little bit more when I start like the the summary of it, but the main character, and it's a first person narrative, so it's an I main character, I did this, I did that, is a child. She's She is recalling, so technically speaking, when she's narrating, she's an adult now, but she's narrating about things from when she was, she's five when it starts out in the very beginning, a young child. So this was what she grew up with. This was what she was surrounded with in those times. But before we kind of jump super into that, a little bit about um, kind of leading up to To Kill a Mockingbird and like when it's published and stuff like that. So Harper Lee or Nell Harper Lee, she was born in 1926 and she grew up in Alabama, in Monroeville, Alabama. She was actually really good friends, uh, some say best friends with Truman Capote, who uh, is another famous writer. Uh, (laughs) She attended college in Montgomery, Alabama in 1944 and 1945, and she also studied law at the University of Alabama in 1945 through 1949, which is just insane for a woman to be doing in the Deep South, especially Alabama. And she was always writing. She wrote about race and racial injustice a lot in most of her stuff. When she was writing, essentially... She about like the late 1950s or so, like 1956, 1957, her friends, particularly Capote, were all like, wow, like she started sharing her work more and they were like, this is really good now. Like, like this is good stuff. You should try and get published and stuff like that. You should write more things. You should write like a full novel. So her friends essentially like 
donated to, like it like she would have had a patreon page and her friends would have like been her patrons <laughs> in this day and age and so people like supporting her allowed her to actually write uninterrupted for a year which is how she finished the draft that would eventually become to kill a mockingbird so the draft went through two or three iterations before it became To Kill a Mockingbird, and it was published July 11th in 1964, so four years after it's published. Lee actually is um, quoted as saying that she never expected any sort of success from Mockingbird. She was actually hoping when it was published, she says, quote, was a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers, and that she just hoped to, quote, that someone would like it enough to give me encouragement, public encouragement. I hoped for just a little, but she didn't just get a little. She got a whole shit ton lot. <laughs> and she's on the record saying that To Kill a Mockingbird is not an autobiography. It absolutely is not an autobiography. It is fiction. But she also says that a lot of the story, the characters, the types of issues and the types of conversations that you know her characters are dealing with are heavily influenced by her life. She was one of those authors that really believed in the, the idea of that the author should write about what they know. They should write about the truth and about their truth and not like the things that they don't know about, basically. So she, you know, is on the record saying that like, this is by no means my fucking autobiography. It's not like, you know, exactly what I dealt with as a kid, but these characters are absolutely fashioned from, you know, my upbringing and my experiences and the people around me and the stuff that was happening around me. And in fact, in particular, Atticus Finch, who is uh, probably the most notable character from To Kill a Mockingbird, is fashioned, she says clearly uh, in interviews, that she fashioned Atticus Finch after her father, who was Amasa Coleman Lee, who was an attorney, and in 1919 defended two black men accused of murder. And they were eventually convicted, hanged, mutilated. And after that case, her father never tried another criminal case. The only other thing before getting into the summary of To Kill a Mockingbird is that uh, very recently To Kill a Mockingbird came into the public eye, like very prominently again, when in 2015, suddenly... Ghosts at a Watchman was published for Harper Lee. It was released. So this was a draft. She completed this draft in 1957. And this draft of Ghosts at a Watchman is 20 years after the time period depicted in To Kill a Mockingbird. It is not the continuation of the narrative. It is essentially a rough draft of what would eventually become To Kill a Mockingbird. However, because of lots of like misinformation and confusion surrounding why Ghost at a Watchman suddenly got published and things like that, people like started talking about, oh, this was meant, you know, to be like a, a book, like to, the To Kill a Mockingbird world was supposed to be a, a trilogy and Ghost of the Watchmen was supposed to be the last in the trilogy and there was supposed to be a book that was coming in between and like uh, everyone was really upset because Ghost of the Watchmen portrays in particular Atticus Finch, who is a huge character in To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, it sets him 
obviously 20 years later, and he's embroiled in a different kind of racial tension issue. And everyone was very upset about his characterization. And essentially, all of that is just not true. What it really was, and Lee has said it multiple times, that it was a first draft of what she eventually turned into To Kill a Mockingbird. It was a first draft for a reason. Uh, it was not what eventually she ended up wanting to be the canon of her story. To Kill a Mockingbird was what she wanted the story to be. Uh, however, she was not upset at publishing Ghosts at a Watchman. She kind of thought like, you know, it would be interesting for people just to see what her first draft was. There was some drama, actually, people talked about and worried about elder abuse. Because in 2015, at this point, Harper Lee was still alive, of course when this got published, but she's very old. Uh, she's almost 90. And the person that published this for her was not related to her. It was just a long time, like family friend, basically. And people were kind of concerned with how the permission to publish this draft came about. So yeah. before- yeah. Like, she didn't yeah. publish it 60 years ago. Like, why are you forcing her to publish it now? Yeah, yeah, basically. So, like, before this time, in the very early months of, of 2015, Harper Lee had a sister, and her sister Alice died. And before she died, Alice had been essentially, like, like Harper Lee's, like, metaphorical bodyguard, basically. Her guard dog, her watchman, whatever you want to call it. Like, if you wanted to get something out of Harper Lee, you had to go through her sister. And she watched out for her sister first and foremost. Um, like, everyone says that, you know, it was a great relationship, and she was wonderful. And so it was only after Alice died that this book suddenly got published and so people were kind of like exactly what you just said like why is it suddenly 60 years later why are you publishing this she's almost 90 like she doesn't she's not gonna care if she gets more money at this point like she doesn't yeah need you're taking you're taking advantage of her for your own gain yes essentially there was there that and that's where the whole conversation of like elder abuse discussion came in Lee herself apparently said, you know, that's nonsense. No one's abusing me. You know, I'm okay with it. But other people around her who definitely cared for her would say like, you know, we love her to death and we're happy that she doesn't feel like she's been taken advantage of, but we just kind of want to go on the record. At this point, you know, Nell, Lee is you know, she's almost 90. She's basically deaf and basically blind and, you know, is in a wheelchair and like, she's going to sign anything you put in front of her because she's an old woman, you know, she needs people to be helping her. And, you know, it's definitely easy to take advantage of someone in that situation and just be like, oh yeah, just sign right here. You know, we're not saying you forced her, you know, we're not saying you put a gun to her head, but it's just a questionable decision that you made. We're questioning your intentions, essentially your integrity, but whether or not you believe that something nefarious was going on or not, it did get published. And for some people, they thought that it was really unfortunate that I got published because they thought it kind of did detriment to the characters for some reason. But for the most part, people who accept that it's just a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, they say like, it doesn't really matter. It kind of has no bearing because the, the whole fact that it's a first draft means that it wasn't what the eventual final decision was. And the final decision of what she wanted to publish is what matters. And that was To Kill a Mockingbird. And that's who we have. And that was who endured for, you know, 60 plus years. 
And then eventually, unfortunately, about a year after that, uh, actually less than a year after that, Nell Harperly died in her sleep, just kind of of old age, I think, in late February 2016. She was almost at 90. She was at 89 years old. That is the information surrounding To Kill a Mockingbird. And now we can dive right into the synopsis. To Kill a Mockingbird begins, we get to hear that our main character, who is a first-person narrator, her name is Scout, is what she calls herself. And she has a brother named Jem. Jem is what she calls him at the beginning. We eventually learn their real names, uh, but as of right now, it, it's Scout and Jem. And our narrator tells us that she and her brother don't really agree on the events from when they were a child that lead up to him eventually breaking his arm. So apparently at the age of 13, he breaks his arm. And they apparently have had this long running argument in their lives now that they're adults of like, what was the catalyst? Like, what was the thing that just yeah. made it like, okay, now it is Jem is going to break his arm and everything has changed. Jem thinks that it is the summer they met Dill. And we learn of Dill as a new neighbor that comes across in the summer of when Scout is five years old and Jem is nine years old. So we are now transferred back in time and for the rest of the novel, Scout is telling the story from that starting point that Jem tells her that she should tell the story from, essentially. So remember, Jem breaks his arm at age 13. And Jem says, it all started the summer we met Dill when I was nine. So several years are going to span in this story. This is the story of how Jem breaks his arm basically, is what we're told. And it starts when they have a new neighbor. He introduces himself and says to call him Dill. And Scout is five years old. Jem is nine. Dill, I think, is like seven. He's like right in the middle of them. And they just become fast friends because like, what the hell else are you going to do in like the 1930s? And they live in Alabama and they're in like, a, you know, not a fancy neighborhood. Let's just say that in Alabama in the 1930s. So there's a new neighbor and it's like, oh, cool, fun. Dill isn't a new neighbor in the terms that like he lives here. He's visiting his aunt who lives here. But he actually lives like a couple of towns over or something like that. But he's here for the summer visiting his aunt. So during this summer, he becomes obsessed with a particular neighbor in their neighborhood called Boo Radley. Boo Radley lives at, of course, the Radley household where the Radley family, quote unquote, lives. And he's essentially the neighborhood boogeyman for anyone who's ever been a kid in kind of a small town setting. <laughs> you know, you have a neighborhood boogeyman or a neighborhood house or a neighborhood area that, you know, the kids are always like, oh, even if it's true or not, it doesn't matter if it's true or yeah, not. Yeah, that it's old like, guy who lives at the, the end of the street. House. Who exactly. never, that's, he yeah. doesn't go out of his house that the kids ever see, you know. He, yeah, exactly. More, more than likely, he works a nine to five job or like just a morning job and he's right. home and then asleep. He's probably a normal dude, but kids are always afraid of him because they only see him once in a blue moon and he always looks right. like haggard as fuck. And remember, yeah, exactly. And remember, again, we're in the 1930s. So there's no oh, yeah, so to like occupy these kids time <laughs> like there is yeah. today. 
they have nothing else to do besides sit around and just make, make up stories up about the people around them. Exactly. Well, yeah. So Boo Radley is just known in this neighborhood. He's essentially the neighborhood boogeyman. And Dill becomes obsessed with Boo Radley because even though Boo Radley exists and everyone knows about him, apparently Boo Radley hasn't been out of the house in like decades. Like no one has seen him in like 20 years or something. And Dill is like, <laughs> oh man, Dill is like, well, why? I want him to come out of the house. <laughs> And the kids at first, when Dill's saying this, is like, you don't, you don't live here. Like, you would know not to say that. Like, that, we're, that's just not happening. <laughs> and Dill's like, why? Are you guys, like, scared? And, of course, this to a nine-year-old young boy named Jem is like, bitch, I'm not scared. So, you know, now we've got Dill and Jem on the train of, okay, now oh, we're both let's obsessed go see with this Boo Radley. Dude. Now we have to try and figure out how to get Boo Radley eventually to come out of his house. So they are now just obsessed and right before the end of the first chapter in fact like Jem is dared to like go and run up and like touch the side of the house and he's like you know super scared to do it but he finally does it and then they like run back to their house and Scout looks behind her and she thinks that she sees in the Radley house like the curtains in the window kind of move like maybe someone was kind of looking out and they just kind of like walked away but she's not really sure she's five years old she's like whatever so she's fueling her own nightmares (laughs) yeah for sure Dill you know this summer leaves uh and Dill leaves with it because he, you know, doesn't actually live here. He's just visiting here for the summer. So when Dill leaves, Gem and Scout start school. And this year, Scout is in the second grade. She's got a new teacher. This new teacher is young. Her name is Miss Caroline. And essentially, Scout and Miss Caroline just don't get along very well. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of just like the end She's of it. She's in the second grade at age five? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, like, yeah, conversation that we could be had. Oh, she's incredibly smart. And in fact, this is one of the reasons that Miss Caroline and Scout don't get along because Scout can read very well for her age. And Miss Caroline, when she learns this, she's like, you need to stop doing lessons and reading stuff with your father at home because, you know, your father isn't educated. You need to learn how to read, quote unquote, the right way, essentially. And Scout is just kind of like confused about that. Like, I don't understand like what the, what, what's the what problem? What a horrible teacher. Yeah. So Scout and Miss Caroline just don't get along. <laughs> And she gets, in fact, punished, like, the first day of meeting Miss Caroline. And she blames this punishment on Walter Cunningham, uh, one of her, like, unfortunate little peers. So she, like, starts trying to beat him up in recess, essentially. And Jem has to, like, drag her off him and, you know, invites Walter over to, like, lunch with them, basically, to, like, make up for the fact that Scout is crazy and was just trying to, like, beat his ass in, the, in recess. Um, yeah. So, you know, Walter Cunningham comes. They have lunch. Scout kind of makes fun of him a little bit because he's clearly a very poor kid. He's very poor, much poorer than they are. And they are poor. Their dad tells them a lot that they are poor. They are not rich or middle class by any stretch of the imagination. But Walter Cunningham is very poor. So he's like, he comes here to get to eat lunch and he's just like eating everything in sight and dousing everything in like syrup. And Scout's like, what are you doing? Basically, because she's five and she doesn't understand that that's rude to say. So She like gets more in trouble. She's upset about that. But the most important thing about this day is when they come back, there is a kid in their class named Burris Ewell. And essentially the problem is Miss Caroline sees that Burris Ewell, a Ewell child, 
is very dirty and she tells him that he needs to go home and change because she's seen essentially like a bed bugs or something like crawl like ticks or something crawling around on this poor kid's head and miss caroline is very concerned about this so she tells you that he needs to go home and clean himself before he comes back and everyone in the class is like miss caroline please don't poke at a yule like he's going to murder you probably and then we're all just going to like have to deal with you dying on the first day of class and like we're we just don't want to deal with that <laughs> basically like yeah. all the kids at this point are much more knowledgeable about this than she is because we learn immediately that Burris Ewell is a child that he this is his like fourth time in the second grade at this point and they come on the first day of school every year so that the truancy officers can't technically do anything legally to the Ewell family. So they come for the first day and then they don't come back to class ever again. There's like dozens of Ewell kids and there's no mom anymore, but there's dozens of Ewell kids and they're poor AF and they don't go to school because they can't afford, it's not that they can't afford to go to school because school is free, obviously, but it's because the kids are all used for work. They, yeah. they have to be used for work. So essentially Burris Ewell is like, bitch, what are you going to do? Make me go home? You can't make me do anything. And like makes his teacher cry. Basically, it's very interesting. And this is our first introduction to the Ewells and their family. So as the school year progresses, Jim and Scout, they have to walk by the Radley house to and from town or to and from school, no matter what. So they start finding things. There's this tree on the Radley property that has like a hole in it, like a knot um, that has like a hole in it. And they start finding random things in this tree on the Radley property, just random things like yarn. Uh, they find like gum in there, um, random stuff. So they decide that they're going to keep some of this stuff because why not? Essentially, like, Jem's reasoning is like, this must be like somebody's hidey hole for like the things that they like to keep. So we'll just keep this stuff for a while and yeah. see if people... Yeah, well, yeah, like, see if someone comes and tries to get it and then then we'll know. But then if not, then like that's weird and we're kids and we'll be able to kind of like learn more about a mystery essentially everything is filled with magic to them you know so yeah they decide to keep the stuff that they're finding and as the year goes on it finally ends second grade finally ends dill returns for the summer they get to play that whole summer at one point <laughs> They're like playing in these big like semi truck tires, basically huge tires that are so large that these little scrawny kids can fit inside of them and you can like roll them around. <laughs> yeah. And so like at one point they're like playing like that and they put Scout in and they roll her ass like down the neighborhood hill basically. And they, but they roll her so good that she like smack runs straight into the Radley house. And, like, everyone is like, oh, my God, Boo Radley's going to murder her. We have to, like, go get her. So they, like, have to rescue her from the yard, essentially. <laughs> uh, and it's just kind of a funny moment because Scout thinks that when this is happening, she thinks she hears someone laughing from inside the house, but she can't really be sure. In this summer as well, we meet one of their other neighbors called, uh, they call her Miss Maudie. Uh, she's great. She's like that old firecracker woman that just doesn't take shit from anybody that is just kind of a straight shooter. And she's a good match for Atticus. If, if people read To Kill a Mockingbird today, 
they would ship Miss Maudie and Atticus Finch, I think. You know what I'm saying? That mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Because she's a, she's a very no nonsense type of woman and she you know she doesn't care that scout's a tomboy you know she doesn't care about all of the crazy things that they want to do you know she's gonna help them she's gonna make sure they're okay but like she finds them funny she feeds them and they have a good time basically so they learn from miss Maudie in this summer more about the radleys because now they're kind of getting older jem and dill are and scout's old enough now that she's kind of like becoming more aware of things so they learn about the radleys and kind of like their dark past Apparently, the original Radleys, Mr. and Mrs. Radley, were just very, very um, stern, painted as abusive a little bit, just like bad things going on in the house, and that the two boys, Nathan and Arthur, or Boo Radley, Nathan is not that bad of a kid, but apparently Boo Radley is a pretty ornery dude, and he gets in trouble a lot, and his dad basically goes in front of a judge essentially and is like you know release him to me he ain't never gonna get in trouble again i promise you that so they're like all right and that's when boo radley went into the house and he's never been seen since then is the huge myth so dill and jem decide this summer they want to try and get like a note to boo radley because dill is still very obsessed with trying to get boo radley out of the house and Scout, of course, anytime she's young enough, we all know it at this point, especially if we've had siblings, anything that she finds out her sibling is doing, she's going to be there. So when she finds out she's tagging along, Atticus catches them (laughs) trying to do this and he gets them in trouble in like an Atticus Finch type of way. They don't ever get in trouble. Atticus Finch is not like a spanker. You know what I'm saying? He is more of like what we would consider kind of like a better style of parenting today where he gives his kids a lot of latitude and he is stern with them where it matters to the point that like, they're not worried about getting spanked, but they're terrified of making him upset. They're terrified of him being upset with them and disappointing him essentially because they love their dad and he's very often not like that you know that's not who he is so if he is quote-unquote getting them in trouble enough that it's a serious thing like it bothers them so they get in trouble he catches them and they get a very no-nonsense warning from Atticus that he doesn't want them you know messing with the Radleys they need to leave them alone basically and Jem obviously is not going to say no to Atticus's face but he's really kind of frustrated at this because he doesn't understand why he doesn't understand why it's bad for him to like be curious because to him he doesn't have like ill intentions you know what i'm saying like he doesn't he's like i I don't want to like murder the dude i just want to like meet him and he doesn't kind of understand that that in and of itself like how they mythologized him is so insulting (laughs) you know what i'm saying so like for him he's just a kid and he doesn't really understand like why it's such a big deal so the last night of summer essentially is dill's last night before going home and dill and jem have decided that they are all going 
in the middle of the night to try and peek in the Radley's house <laughs> and Scout finds out. So she, of course, has to come too. So as they're going around and looking around, while they're there, there's this shadow. They're essentially in the yard and like a shadow passes over them. And because they're children and it's the middle of the night and they're in like a mythologized boogeyman's yard, it's the most terrifying thing that they've ever experienced. And as they run off after the shadow passes, a gunshot rings out. <laughs> basically at them and so they're even more terrified now Jem in particular loses his pants like they have to kind of like slide under in this fence situation and his pants get caught on the fence and they're just so terrified that Jem just like shimmies out of his fucking pants it's just like running and his like boxers they're just running home and then they realize oh no because they're outside you know, they think that they're going to be able to run home and everyone is still inside because it's middle of the night. But no, suddenly everyone is out in the middle of the street. And it's because that gunshot rang out because apparently Nathan Radley has seen someone lurking around his property and so like tried to scare him off by shooting a gunshot. And so and the it worked. adults, yeah, so the adults are like, who could this be? What is going on? And the kids are like, Jesus to do right now uh so they kind of like are walking up and they're like oh we we heard the you know like what are you guys all up for and they're like oh did you know did you hear the gunshot but they get caught out because jem doesn't have his fucking pants on so they almost get in trouble but dill actually covers for them and basically lies about like playing strip poker or something like that so he like won jem's pants off him so that gets like at least we weren't we didn't get in trouble for going to the radley's house (laughs) essentially yeah but in that middle of that night, Jem is like, I got to go back for my pants. Because otherwise, when Atticus asks me where my pants are, where am I, I going to bring my pants from? So Scout is just terrified. She's convinced that Jem going back to get his pants that night, like he's just, he's going to be dead. <laughs> so he comes back with his pants and he's clearly scared, but he won't tell Scout what happens. And he actually won't tell her for a long time. So as school starts again for this next year, so now Scout's in third grade, right? He eventually reveals to Scout that the reason that he was scared that night is because when he went back to get his pants, they weren't caught in the fence anymore. And it's not just that they weren't caught in the fence anymore. They were folded up, laid over the top of the fence, and someone had already stitched up the hole that it had ripped in his pants for him. So he went to go get his pants and he found them like that. And he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Magic. Yes. To a little kid that's like, whoa. He was, he was just wizards. like, yeah, he's just like, his mind was blown AF. He yeah. doesn't understand. Yeah. It's so, a witch. Yeah. They essentially are just like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't mean anything good, according to them. And on their way home, you know, to and from school and stuff like that, they start finding stuff in the hole in the tree again on the Radley property. And this time, this year, the things that they start finding are much different from the year before. They're very clearly presents for Jem and Scout. In particular, at one point, like, there's soap sculptures that are sculpted kind of to look exactly like Jem and Scout. And so it kind of, like, leaves no doubt. Yeah, so it leaves no doubt that, like, the person who's leaving the stuff in there knows that they're finding it, knows that they're taking it, and is leaving it there for them. And they're like, oh, fuck. So Jem... You guys are being watched. 
Like Yeah, and so Jem and Scout are, of course, convinced that it's Boo that's doing this. So Jem is like, we're going to write a letter to him and put it in that hole. But the minute that they find this out, that it's obvious enough for them, like those soap sculptures, I think, are the last thing before they decide to write the note. When they go back to try and put the note in, they actually find Nathan Radley filling the hole in the tree outside with cement and is like the tree's dying i'm filling the hole you guys get out of here basically and the kids are like uh what the fuck and so like they're just terrified about this base because obviously it means that nathan radley found out about what was happening and now he's covering the hole up you know so they can't talk to boo so it snows during this year for the first time in a really long time in their little Alabama county. So they have a snow day. It's a fun snow day. Jim and Scout create a snowman that looks like one of their like really grumpy ass neighbors. And Atticus and Miss Maudie think it's kind of hysterical, but they're kind of like, you should probably change the way he looks a little bit because it's almost too obvious that you're making fun of him. It's just some fun shenanigans. That night, However, unfortunately, Miss Maudie's house catches on fire. And so the kids have to be waking up in the middle of the night and they're taken out to the end of the street because at this point, a house fire could potentially burn the entire neighborhood down because of how flammable how houses everything are. Is, yeah. Exactly. So everyone in the county essentially is coming to try and put Miss Maudie's house, the fire on it out. And she's losing her entire house, essentially. At this point, they're not going to be able to save the house. They're trying to save the stuff inside the house. But the kids have to be far down the road. So they put them all down the road kind of right next to where the Radley house is. As they're outside, I mean, Scout's a child, remember? So she, when she's standing out there, it's so cold. It's a fucking weird-ass night. It's the middle of the night. She, like, basically is, like, falling in and out of sleep on her feet. And as they finally are able to come back home, Scout realizes, everyone realizes around her, and it makes her realize, they're like, Scout, where did you get that blanket? And she kind of like looks around and she has a blanket around her shoulders and it's not hers. She didn't start the night with it. And she's like, I, I don't know where I got this. And Atticus <laughs> is like, oh, you know what? And they know it's not Nathan Radley who did this because they were around the Radley's house. Nathan was helping everyone with the fire. They know where Nathan is. So there's only one other person in that house now that could have put that blanket around her and it's boo so now they're like oh fuck like boo came out and like put the thing on her like and damn it we didn't get to see him. him we didn't get to see him basically uh, update so- he's invisible <laughs> So it is around this time, unfortunately, that we get to what is going to eventually become the climax issue of the story, uh, because Scout has a new problem at school and around town, and that is that her peers and everyone is starting to call Atticus some names. Jem actually is usually very, like, even-minded, but she is, of course, a firecracker. Like, she gets in trouble for fighting just all the time. (laughs) And they're calling Atticus very clearly insulting names, but she doesn't understand what they mean. It deals with the N-word. He's an N-lover, things like that. She learns from her dad, basically, that the reason that they're doing this is because he is defending a black man in court soon. He's a lawyer. Uh, I don't remember if I... uh, told you guys that about Atticus Finch. He's a lawyer. That's what his job is. So he says, you know, you need to just let this go. They're going to say this. Like, it's not going to stop. You just need to just not listen to them and just let it go. You're not allowed to fight. I forbid you from fighting anyone because of this. Like, it doesn't matter. 
So Christmas comes this year. They get to see their favorite Uncle Jack, who is Atticus's brother. And they go actually to the old Finch property, like the Finch family proper land, basically called Finch Landing. Uh, So they have to like hang out with some cousins and aunts that they don't really get to see that often. And they kind of don't care about because like they're children and who the fuck cares. But they have a second cousin named Francis, who's just like this huge, like fuck boy pansy ass that like, you know, the whiny bratty cousin that is just so pompous and his face begs you to punch it just all the time that's francis and essentially he makes the same comment about atticus and even though scout was trying all day to not punch him and he was basically teasing her and trying to get her in trouble for trying to fight him essentially she had avoided it this whole day until francis says this and then she like basically busts his like face open like hardcore and uncle jack comes out and catches them at it and at first he you know severely punishes scout because it looks like scout has just like broken her cousin's nose apparently for like no good reason but you know eventually later on he learns her side of the story and he regrets his sort of hasty judgment and in fact when he learns that the reason behind why scout did what she did he goes out to talk to her father thinking that the kids are asleep but she follows him out to like eavesdrop and she hears that Atticus believes essentially that his defense of this black man whose name is Tom Robinson is going to be really hard and that he's hoping this is the worst of what his kids are going to have to deal with. You know, he's essentially like, I pray that this is the only trouble that we're going to have is people calling me names and so having to make sure Scout doesn't murder everyone in town. You know, like I hope that that's the only issue that we have because he's worried about it potentially getting much worse and scout doesn't really understand the implications of the conversation that she is listening to but the reader does you know the reader can tell at this point what's going on uh you know we're learning like oh crap you know like he's actually like legitimately going to try and defend this black man and we are in alabama in the 1930s and people are not happy about it his family is now a target basically so we get a fun couple of chapters that are setting up that gem is getting older now gem is going through puberty basically scout is just not fucking into it she's like you used to be my friend. Now, all of a sudden, you are, like, moody, and you, like, want to hang out with me, but then you don't want to hang out with me, and you're just, like, an asshole most of the time, and you're trying to, like, be the boss of me, and, like, you're not the fucking boss of me. Like, you're a kid, too, just like me, but you're trying to act like you're not a kid, and, you know, typical, like, I am the younger sibling, and my sibling is now going through puberty, and so we have issues type of conflicts, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we get like a couple chapters where it's really like we get some fun, interesting stuff to see. And they're mostly just kind of about showing how Jem is kind of navigating this like puberty onset, especially dealing with like the fact that his dad is who he is. You know, like his dad is now a person in society that mostly everyone considered and talked about with respect. But nowadays, suddenly getting vilified and talked about angrily by people. And so Jem is going through 
emotional changes and it's confusing him and he doesn't understand. So like we get a very interesting story where like Jem is upset that like Atticus is old basically. Like he realizes like, oh, everyone else's dad plays football. You know, Atticus won't play football because he's an old man. And <laughs> like, so he's kind of like being down in the dumps about the fact that like his dad is super old and he's not cool. I don't have a cool dad. It's basically Jim's issue. And I mean, isn't that every kid though? Right, exactly. It's, every it's a teen, very typical thing. Yes. Every teen ever. My dad sucks. Everyone else's dad is so cool. Or my, sure. my mom yes. or whoever. Like, that's just teen angst. Yeah. And so we, like, when he is dealing with that, it's funny because, like, a very scary thing happens in the neighborhood where there's apparently, like, a very rabid dog. We can assume, based on the description, like, it becomes very evident in, to the reader that this dog apparently has rabies. But you have to remember, again, we're in the 1930s. This is rural Alabama in the 1930s. So a rabid dog running around is potentially very dangerous. It could potentially... Yeah, disastrous. Yeah, murder kids, you know, hurt livestock, murder livestock, ruin a bunch of stuff for people. So when this rabid dog is walking around, everyone, including the sheriff, runs to Atticus and say, you know, Atticus, you're the only one who, you know, is the best, you're the best shot. You have to take this dog out. And Atticus is like, I haven't shot a gun in, you know, years. And they're like, we don't, we don't care. We know that you can do it. And this is something that is new to Jem and Scout. Jem and Scout are like, what are you talking about? My dad can shoot. My dad won't even give us guns. Like, what are you talking about? He, can't, he doesn't well, I shoot mean, guns. Those kids would have been born right after he got back from World War I. So, so <laughs> it turns out because as the dog is like down the fucking neighborhood, super far away, Atticus, like the sheriff basically insists on Atticus killing the dog. So Atticus is like, fine, and he takes his glasses off, and he holds the rifle up, and he kind of takes aim for a minute, and he fires one shot, and he's killed the dog dead in the head. Because, as they learn, Atticus is the deadest shot in Macomb County. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he was a sniper in World War I. (laughs) So, yeah. So all of a sudden, like this instance, Jem is like, holy shit, my dad's the fucking coolest dad ever. Like, why didn't we know about this? Why doesn't our dad ever talk about this, like, cool stuff about himself, you know? And it's also, you know, a picture to Atticus's character that, like, what he portrays as important in life and what he portrays to his children, like, he doesn't brag himself up. He doesn't want to. Like, the fact that he's the deadest shot is actually something that, it would make him cool with all the kids. It does make him cool in the county. Like everyone, when this happens, the sheriff and everyone is like, Atticus, Atticus, dead shot Finch or whatever his like nickname is. I don't remember. He has like a nickname about it. Like yeah. everyone thinks that this aspect about him is cool. And it's one of the things that Atticus actually dislikes the most about himself. Well, because he doesn't it's very, appreciate it. It's very in line with a lot of stories revolving around World War One and World War Two. A lot of men who came back from those wars were so traumatized. Up, I mean, traumatized and and upset with themselves at the atrocities that they had to commit in the right. heart of war that 
they completely disavowed that entire lifestyle. The idea of using a gun again against mm-hmm. anything, like even hunting for food was just like yep. horrible to a lot of them. Like they couldn't even do yes. it because they had, you know, the atrocities that they had to bear witness to in the war, like fuck them up forever. So it makes sense makes complete sense that their kids wouldn't have known about it at all he wouldn't have said a damn thing about it because it's one of those things he was repressing yes yeah and essentially is that's something that the reader learns and figures out based on what the kids are witnessing and for the kids all the kids are understanding is like oh shit my dad's actually really cool but based on what you see and like what everyone says like the conversations that everyone is having you can tell and you learn this about Atticus you learn that this is a part of Atticus's character about what makes him who he is and like what his worldview is basically and then like we have another funny chapter of Jem dealing with having to be older and deal with annoying things like they have a neighbor who's like his really old woman and she's a bitch (laughs) like she's just a huge bitch but you know their dad is always like you know you respect your elders you don't treat anybody it doesn't matter what anyone's saying and there's no sort of filter there's no like thought to like what she's saying is just not appropriate <laughs> or anything yeah. like that. That's who Mrs. DeBose is. Uh, and Jem gets in trouble because she's constantly, constantly nowadays shitting on Atticus because of his decision to defend Tom Robinson. And so Jem, this is his first kind of fit of rage. Like I said, normally Scout is the one that explodes. And this time Jem does. He ruins her garden, basically he's so pissed off and so in punishment Atticus makes him read to Mrs. DeBose every day after school for an entire month and this is just terrifying to them because they're children they don't understand this lady is awful you know to them and when they go to read because of course Scout goes with him because what else is she gonna do um (laughs) Every time they go to read to her, they read to her and she's her same horrible self. But as time goes on, it'll get to a certain time after they've started reading that she starts having fits as they're reading to her and suddenly an alarm will go off and then her caretaker will come in and make them go away. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, is she possessed by the devil? (laughs) Like, what, what is this? Oh, kids. But oh, like the fits, the fits come later and later as time goes on. And finally their last day, she doesn't have a fit at all. And she goes, all right, that'll do. And uh, you're done. You don't have to come in here anymore. And they're like, ah, shit. Oh, yes. And like that very night or like a couple days later, it's a very short time after that, Mrs. DeBose dies. And after she dies... Atticus then sits down with Jem and tells Jem that the reason that I wanted you to do this for her is because I wanted you to learn more about who she is and like what you were witnessing for her. And of course, Jem and Scout are like, we don't understand. Like, she's just a bitch. Like, you don't, we don't, this is stupid. And Atticus is like, well, no, she had a vice. And so she was so old and had so many issues and her health, apparently she was in a morphine addict. But she didn't want to die being beholden, like, quote unquote, to anything or anyone in this life before she left. So she wanted to kick her morphine addiction before she died, even though it was going to be torture Kill for her, her yeah. essentially. Yeah. So Atticus took the opportunity 
as the punishment because he knew he needed to punish Jem, but he took the opportunity to try and teach Jem essentially about what he considers bravery uh, is what he tries to describe to the son that like, she's one of the bravest people I have ever met son. You know, she dealt with immense pain that, you know, every time you saw her in a fit, it's because she's in so much pain that she's literally out of her mind, you know, and she did that for her will alone, because that's what she wanted. And there was nothing and no one that was going to make her be beholden to anyone except God and herself by the time she kicked the bucket. And there's the end of that anecdote. So now we get like a very obvious skip of like, anyway, that was kind of sad and awkward. Now Jem is 12. (laughs) They get a summer finally where summer comes, but Dill does not come for summer. And Scout is just miserable. They've like had this thing, Dylan Scout, where like, remember when they first met, she's five and he's like seven. Like by the end of that summer, Dylan Scout are like, we're going to get married. Like, (laughs) yeah. And so like, she's just like in love with him as like a kid can only be in love with another kid. And he's like the same even though like he's still like mostly with Jem and like he and Jem are kind of often of the same vein but then like when he's only with Scout they're just all about each other it's it's cute it's very childish so Dill is not here for some reason this is the first summer we get that he has not come back so Scout's miserable Atticus has to go into the city for a couple weeks because of his case, he has to go and, like, do, like, depositions or something like that. So while he's out, they have a paid housekeeper, caretaker, babysitter, maid person. She is a Black woman. Her name is Calpurnia. And she's been here this whole time. I just haven't mentioned her yet because um, it hasn't been, like, super necessary yet in terms of, like, big plot story. points. But... Yeah, but she's been there this whole time, and she's been there since the kids have been born, we learn. So she is essentially, like, they all know that she's not their mom, obviously, but she's been an authoritative figure in their household since they were babies. And so, you know, she runs that house. She makes sure that they have clean clothes. She makes sure that the food is made and the house is in order and all of that good stuff. So when Atticus goes off for two weeks, Cal is taking care of the kids. And so on the weekend, they have to go to church, but Atticus isn't there to take them to church. And Cal cannot go to the white church, as we, the readers, know and understand. Cal cannot go. But she's like, but the kids have to go to church. I can't leave them anywhere. And I can't go to the white church with them. So she takes them to their church and to her black community church. So there they learn that Tom Robinson, who is the black man that Atticus is defending, he has a wife. The wife's name is Helen Robinson. We learn there that Helen is having trouble getting work, essentially because of her husband's reputation and situation that she's essentially getting persecuted because of her association with her husband. They also learn very specifically during this outing what Tom Robinson is accused of. They learn that their father is defending Tom Robinson against the charge of raping a white woman. And this white woman is the eldest daughter 
of Mr. Ewell, Bob Ewell. Remember the very poor, angry asshole kid from the beginning. He, his eldest daughter, her name is Mayella, and Tom, the reason that he needs to be defended is because he is um, charged with raping Mayella Ewell, Bob Ewell's eldest daughter. So when they come home from that church outing, they find someone sitting on their porch. And this someone is Aunt Alexandra. (laughs) We met Aunt Alexandra very briefly. I didn't mention her because it wasn't super necessary. The last time we meet her in the narrative was when they like went to Christmas, like at the Finch Landing house. So it's Atticus's sister. It's Atticus and Jack's sister. And she's here suddenly on their porch. And they're like, uh, hi, Aunt Alexandra, what are you doing here? She's here to stay, apparently. She's here to live with them now. And they're like, uh, uh, why? Yeah. (laughs) Why is she here? And Atticus is like, well, I just thought that it would be good now that you, Scout, are getting older that you have a woman parental figure in your life. And she's like, I have Cal Pernia. And Atticus is like, I know you do, except Aunt Alexandra is here for you now too. (laughs) Basically is his response to it. And so even though they do not understand why, Aunt Alexandra is now here and here to stay. And Scout in particular hates this, (laughs) hates everything about it, does not understand her aunt, thinks her aunt is angry and strange and she's obsessed with genetics according to scout she's obsessed with the good breeding of the finch family name you know what i'm saying so now that she's here yeah it makes sense because scout's right on the cusp of puberty and dad's not about to deal with you know periods and all of that especially in the 1930s like that is very essentially exactly why she's there like it it becomes apparent very obviously to the reader that that's why she's there that's not a thing (laughs) that that atticus wants to deal with and also because i mean the 1930s 13 was not exactly like marrying age like it was in the middle ages but you're right you're getting you're getting there like 15 she's gonna be at the very least, quote unquote, courting soon, you know? Yeah, she's going to so. be a woman. So she's got to make her, mm-hmm. yeah, the aunt's there to kind of like, hey, like maybe you should look at this guy because- She's essentially here to make thing. Scout a quote unquote lady. Is a like debutante, her, like, yeah. Like purpose. And yeah. this in particular, especially when Scout realizes even before she knows it for a fact, she can kind of see where things are going and this is abhorrent to her scout would rather die basically than be a quote unquote lady like she doesn't go by her real name her real name is jean louise by the way but she goes by scout she hates wearing dresses she hates everything about being a lady she curses and gets in trouble for cursing all the time that's (laughs) fucking me hates anything to do with being a lady and that's yeah, why aunt alexandra is here and scout is just like not fucking about it <laughs> yeah like, so like this it's me and scout <laughs> so essentially aunt is here to try and kind of force these changes on the kids and this includes in particular when she kind of sees how quote unquote unruly the children are she starts trying to crack down on atticus and how 
badly Atticus has raised them because they're little heathens now. And so she tries this and Atticus tries to go with what she says basically once. Like she gets in trouble at one point. So Aunt Alexander sends Atticus in to give her a talking to about how she needs to know that she needs to bring good reputation to their name and be a lady. And basically Scout is just so upset by this that it hurts Atticus so much to kind of see that this is what his behavior is doing to his daughter that he almost instantaneously just can't do it. Like at the end of his speech, she's so upset and he can see how upset she is. And so he just gets up and hugs her and, you know, he's like, you know what, just forget about it. Just forget everything I said. You, you don't have to worry about it, basically. And then kind of just like goes off and the kids are like, oh, okay, well, that was fucking weird. So Aunt Alexandra is here to stay. And even though Atticus is not going to go along with her trying to force him to do any of that stuff, he also makes it very clear to the kids that Aunt Alexandra is an authority figure. And so they have to listen to her and mind her just like they mind him, just like they mind Calpurnia. So Atticus essentially says, okay, I understand that this is what you're here for. And I agreed for you being here because obviously I think it's necessary for Scout to have a, you know, an older woman in her life for these changes. But as for the rest of this, you can see very clearly as a reader who's not a child that Atticus has basically said, as for the rest of that stuff, I rid my hands of it. If you want to start trying to push that shit on them, you can deal with that your damn self. Basically, I'm going to continue doing what I've always done with my kids. So you can add on to it with all the stuff you want to do, but you will not change how I treat my kids and what I ask them to do. If I don't think that they need to do something, I'm not going to ask them to do it, basically. So essentially, like one night, (laughs) all this stuff is happening and like Scout reaches under her bed at one point. I don't remember why. She's like trying to get something. I don't, I don't know. But she reaches down under and she feels something very strange. And she's like, Jem, their bedrooms are like adjoining bedrooms, um, basically. And she like whispers through the wall to Jem. She's like, Jem. And he's like, what? She's like, what do snakes feel like? (laughs) He's like what do you mean? What do snakes feel like? And she's like, just what do they feel like? Like if I touched one and he like describes it and she's like, I think there's a snake under my bed. (laughs) And so he's like, uh, so he like gets up and goes into her bedroom and she's like, gets up off the bed and like retreats into the corner. And he like has a broom and he like pokes under the bed. Um, there's not a snake (laughs) under the bed. It turns out Dill is hiding under Scout's bed. What the Uh, fuck? Yeah. And Dill is like, okay, well, please stop hitting me with the broom now that you found me. Um, hi, I'm here. I'm not a snake. <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck are you doing here? I thought you were at home. Like, I didn't think you were, you were going to be here for summer. And Dill is like, yeah, I ran away. I didn't want to be there anymore, basically. And Jem, because remember, Jem is now becoming a, an adult has a crisis of conscience basically where like he's very happy that dill is here but he says "Mm, i need to tell my dad that you're here like i can't not tell the adults that you're here and dylan you know scout are like don't fucking do that he's gonna get in trouble and jem is like i can't like i have to so he tells atticus 
And of course, Atticus is fine. He's just like, you know, hang out, Dill, you, you know, stay here for the night. I'm just going to go and tell your aunt that you're here so that no one is worrying about you being dead or something since you've run away. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about this in the morning, but, you know, just hang out, eat some food. Yeah. Sleep the kid on the couch, is like, stay out of my daughter's room. The kid has, like, you know, like, jumped, like, a freight train or something and has, like, hid out under this poor girl's bed, like, for a day and a half or something crazy like that. So he's, he's like, ravenous. He's, like, eating everything in sight. And they're just, yeah. like, this fucking kid. So, like, yeah, he's, like, We're, we don't have to deal with this right now. It's the middle of the fucking night. Let's just all go to bed. And it's interesting that you're like, stay out of my daughter's bedroom. It's very funny because as young as they are, like, so like Dill is supposed to be staying the night in Jem's room, but he sneaks in a scout's room in the middle of the night so that they can lay down and like talk. Basically, just they just like talk to sleep. It's very cute. It's very innocent, sweet, basically, that he's just like, I have so much stuff to tell you. And she like has to talk to him about stuff and it's very cute. So they learn, you know, the next morning, okay, Dill can stay in the area. His aunt is very pissed. And, you know, but, and now that everyone knows that he's not dead and he's there, he might as well stay there basically. You yeah. Know? So he stay now for the rest of the summer, like normal. The sheriff visits, it's like Saturday night or something like that. The sheriff visits and he's worried about, they try to listen in on the conversation. He's worried about something to do with Tom Robinson, but they can't really figure out what it is that he's worried about because he's come here to talk to Atticus. They can't really piece together what it is that he's concerned about. And it's not super clear yet, even to the reader. Like you catch bits and pieces of what they're saying and it has to deal with where Tom Robinson is, the fact that the court, the trial, I should say, is starting, like, on Monday. And Atticus is like, you know, it's two more days. Like, we're going to, people can't just, like, deal with it and stuff like that. And he's getting calls now from a bunch of people in the neighborhood, too. So the kids are very worried. Scout is worried more so because Jem is worried. Jem is worried because he's older and he can very clearly see, he can see a little bit more than Scout can that something is wrong here. And he at first is kind of worried like about like gang activity. <laughs> he's like, are these guys like trying to get you dad? And Haddockus is like, you've been, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> like you've been like yeah. listening to me, like scary stories at night, kid, like, no, everything's fine. But Sunday evening, Rather than retiring to bed with everyone else, right about the time everyone is going to bed, Atticus picks up his stuff to leave and says, I have to go into work. By the time I get home, you guys will definitely be in bed. So please, you know, you guys should definitely be asleep. I'm going to be late. Basically, don't wait up for me, but I got to go. Everything's cool. It's fine. Cal, Cal, stay the night, hang out with them. And they try to kind of make it seem cool. But Jem and Scout and Dill at this point, because Dill is also here, are like, things are very not normal. This is very not cool. We have to go. <laughs> so they follow their dad after they wait a while. And then they go out and they said, well, he said he was going to work. So let's go and see if that's actually where he is. So they go to try and find their dad 
they find their father. They haven't announced their presences yet, but as they are walking into town, they see their father is at work. He's not inside. He's not inside the building of his work. He's sitting outside the front door of his building. Where he works, need I remind everyone here, um, this is rural Alabama in the 1930s. He's an attorney. So the building he works is the courthouse, all of the other legal things, and also the jail. So he's sitting outside the front door entrance of this building with like a lamp and he's just reading. (laughs) And they're like, what the fuck is he doing out here? And just as they're thinking about that, a large group of older men of the community suddenly show up in a bunch of cars. It is a crowd. It is a lot more than just like two or three, basically. And they come out and they gather around Atticus and Atticus is like, hey, what's up, guys? And they're like, yeah, he's up in there, right? And Atticus is like, yeah, that's where people who are in jail go. They go in jail. Yes, he is up in jail. And they're like, you need to step aside. And Atticus is like, mm, can't do that. And they're like, you need to step aside, dude. And Atticus is like, yeah, guys need to go home because I'm not stepping aside, basically. And we're learning all of this via Scout. Scout does not see what Jem sees. She can see that what's going on Jem is very, very disturbed by it and worried. And she is not comfortable with the vibe. So she kind of is like, you know what? I'm six or seven at this point. It's kind of ambiguous, like how old she is. She's like six-ish, seven-ish. She's like, I'm just going to announce myself and like make everything stop because I want to change the vibe, basically. So she's like, hi, Atticus. And like, announces their presence and rather than what she expects like she expects Atticus to be you know surprised and for it to be funny Atticus sees that the kids are there and he visibly changes he's very scared suddenly but now that Scout has announced that they're there they are there and so now the people see the kids there too and all of the crowd are very uncomfortable that the kids are here so now Dill and Jem and Scout are here and Atticus is like, Jem, you need to take your sister and you need to go home right now. And Jem kind of looks at the crowd and looks at his dad and he goes, no, sir, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And it's this, I'm getting goosebumps right now because at this point, it's very obvious to the reader what is occurring here. This is a lynch mob. Oh, um, absolutely. The, the people of this town have come to take Tom Robinson from his jail cell and lynch him. That's, yeah. what's, that's what they're here for. And Atticus is sitting outside of the jail cell and he doesn't ha- he's not armed, he doesn't have a gun. He's just sitting here by himself reading a book, just standing in between the crowd and the door. And Jem is, I mean, 12 maybe at this point, it's about a year or so before the end of the book at this point. He's so young but he's old enough to see what's going on and he looks at the crowd and looks at his dad and says you can tell he's kind of conflicted about it probably because he's thinking I shouldn't have brought my sister here but what is overriding that fear for him is the fear for his father and he's at the same time it's like I can't leave my dad I can't leave and it's very moving Like every time I read that, that scene, because Scout doesn't understand. So we're reading it all from Scout's point of view. And Scout is kind of like, like, I don't understand. Like, what did I do wrong? You know, basically like I thought it was going to be funny. 
So it's very awkwardly silent because the lynch mob is like, what the fuck are the kids doing here? And Atticus is like, jump, take take your fucking sister and go home and Jim is like not doing it and Xiao yeah. is trying to figure out how to you know diffuse the situation and she looks around and sees a familiar face in the crowd and says oh hey Mr. Cunningham you know I didn't see you there when I was originally coming out like how's your how's your son doing I go to school with your son you know me right Walter Walter's your son you know like we had him over for lunch one time like she told him I said hey like I miss him you know, I haven't seen him like this summer. And everyone is just awkwardly silent and just looking at her. And in particular, Mr. Cunningham at this point, who's gotten called out, is looking at her just disturbed. And she kind of looks around and looks up at her dad. And she was like, what? what What's if, going on? Like, yeah, like, what? I, I don't understand what I've done wrong, basically. Yeah. And the minute that she kind of looks up and she starts kind of visibly kind of getting upset, Mr. Cunningham's entire demeanor changes. He goes down to her and he gets down on his knee in front of her and says, I'll tell Walter that you said, hey, Jean Louise. And she's like, yeah, that's what I wanted. (laughs) That's what I wanted, right? And he kind of like pats her on her shoulders and then he stands up and he says, all right, guys, let's go. Let's, let's go. And everyone in the lynch mob kind of like murmurs to themselves for a minute and then they just disperse and the lynch mob goes away. And Atticus is just dumbfounded and happy and still angry and still kind of like running on adrenaline of like, Jesus, what could have just happened right now, basically. And in this moment, too, like you hear that like one of the guys who runs the business next to them, like a newspaper or something, he happened to be in the building at that point. We don't learn until after the lynch mob is gone. He calls from the top from the high um, top floor of his building and he says, Jay, just so you know, Atticus, I had you covered the whole time. And he like waves his rifle in the air like if they wouldn't have moved on you, not without getting one of these you know, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it's this kind of crazy moment for the reader because it's juxtaposed with just how much the young child doesn't understand what she just did, which was yeah. single-handedly defuse a lynch mob. Well, she brought it back to the real world, bringing mention of these people's right. kids, like her, you know? her compatriots, the kids, and then everyone's like, oh shit, you're right. I do have kids at home. You know, Th- this you know, is, I this can't. is the man that, you know, when you were a kid, Mr. Cunningham, Attic- you and Atticus were probably neighbors. You know, the- yeah. these are people that everyone has known for their entire lives. And it kind of brings it back to them, like the reality of the situation. So essentially the next day is Monday. They don't get in trouble because everyone is just happy, obviously, that a lynching didn't occur. But the next day is Tom Robinson's trial. And the kids are not allowed to go to the trial. But of course, they don't listen to their dad and they sneak off and go and follow everyone to the court anyway. The way they get in and they are let in and are able to watch is the uh, Black community that they met, obviously, and that know them because of Calpurnia, they say, oh, hey, you know, this is Atticus Finch's children. This is Mr. Finch's children. And they're like, oh, yeah, please come and sit with us. Like, the Black people hear that this is Atticus Finch's children, and they're just instantly like, yes, you are welcome with us. Yes, yeah, please come and sit with us. So they go and they sit with the Black community, which is like up in the balcony, basically. So the next kind of bigger chunk of the novel, we're basically nearly at the climax here. And it is that the trial begins. 
So in the first bit of the trial, the sheriff is called for testimony. Bob Ewell is called for testimony. What we learn from this testimony, essentially, in terms of the case, is that Mayella Ewell, her injuries are all on her right side. So this means very obviously that whoever um, attacked her is left-handed. Because if, you're, if you have injuries on your right side, it's because someone hit you with their left hand, basically. Yeah. Uh, so we also learn during this that Bob Ewell is left-handed. So the next person to have testimony is Mayella herself. Mayella's testimony is really rough. She can't really walk through the experience without changing things. She contradicts herself about things a lot. Atticus treats her very respectfully, but conversely, as nicely as he treats her, the more upset she gets at him, she kind of feels like he's mocking her. You know, like, who are you trying to call ma'am? Like, you're trying to make fun of me, basically. That I ain't no ma'am because I know what I am. I'm, I'm a poor wench who ain't a ma'am. So don't be mocking me and trying to treat me like that. Like, you're not better than me, you know? And it's kind of this, this really sad moment where you as the reader kind of really read that Atticus is not treating her bad like she thinks he is, but she genuinely thinks he is. She genuinely thinks, you know, the way that he's treating her is a mocking of her. Uh, and it just kind of gives you a window into the type of life that she's clearly had. Atticus, through his questioning of her, makes it kind of apparent to the reader and the courthouse that her father is an abusive alcoholic, that he's routinely beats the kids, you know, and that what has happened in this scenario may not necessarily be what she's saying it is, but that her father may be essentially coercing her into saying that this is what happened. And she just has like a full on meltdown on the stand. She just melts down tries to run out of the courthouse at one point and, you know, has to be consoled and calmed down. Um, the just, it's just really dreadful. And then the last testimony that we hear is Tom Robbins's testimony himself. And because this is the first and only defense witness, now Atticus gets to talk first uh, before the prosecution was always talking first and then Atticus would follow up. But now Atticus gets to talk to Tom first. So Atticus gets to talk Tom through what happened according to Tom. According to Tom's testimony, all of what Mayella and Bob Ewell has said, it's not that it's not accurate, it's that up to a point it's sort of accurate until they're inside the house together. And then everything is absolutely different from what they said. So before Mayala and her father have said that, oh, she asked for Tom to help her in the yard with some like manual labor. And then she went inside and he followed her and tried to rape her and, you know, beat her and raped her and stuff. Well, what, according to Tom, happens is Mayella and him had actually known each other, and he had been helping her out with stuff way longer than she says, like over a year at this point, because he would have to walk by her property to get to his house. So they knew each other much longer than they had originally said that they had known each other. 
and that it wasn't weird for Mayella to ask him to help her with stuff. However, this day was the first time she ever asked him to help her with something inside the house. And he was like, where are the kids at? And she was like, oh, I saved up like for over this whole year to give them enough money that they could go buy ice creams so that we would be alone. And Tom is like, okay. But he goes in to try and help her with what she says needs help. And when she goes in, She's like, oh, I just need you to like stand up on this tall chair and like you got to get that thing up there off the top of the like big shelf or whatever. So he's standing up on the thing. Oh, and by the way, the thing that I forgot to say, uh, first and foremost, that is one of the most important things of this case is, by the way, did we remember that Mayella's injuries are all on her right side, right? Uh, so that means that the person who hurt her is left-handed yeah and uh her father's left-handed tom robinson is right-handed and it's not just that he's right-handed he's right-handed because his left hand is crippled he barely has a functioning left arm when he was younger it got caught and mutilated in a cotton gin and so his arm kind of like dangles at his side and is like misshapen and he literally can't even move his left hand <laughs> So he is essentially like a one-armed dude. <laughs> so he is like up on this chair trying to do whatever it is she's trying to get him to do. And this is when she decides to basically try and like attack him. And she's trying to like sexually assault him basically. Like she's like, yeah. oh, I just want to be with a real man, you know. And Tom is just like at this point he's just panicking because he's just like – Mayday, mayday, this is a white girl, I'm in her house, this is not a good situation, I need to yeah, get out of this situation the of literally here. right now. And the minute that this is happening, it just so happens that her father has come home from wherever it is that he had been, he sees them through the window, and he says, I'll kill you, you dumb whore, to his daughter. And the minute that Mayella sees her dad, like, that's finally when he's able to kind of break away from her because what he says is, like, he could have subdued her, but he didn't want to because he didn't want to hurt her. He just wanted her to get off of him, basically. So the minute that she's startled enough that he's able to break away, he just fucking books it. He's like, I don't fucking know what happened after I left because the minute that I was let go, I was out. I was in the next freaking country by that time because of how far away I was running. And that was the last thing that had happened for me. And so Atticus does that. Then the prosecution gets up on the stand and the prosecution doesn't contest anything. They essentially just reiterate the points that Tom says happened in kind of like a sarcastic and very rude kind of tone. Like, oh, you did this. Oh, you did that. Right. And he's like, why would this white woman ever need help from you? And he's like, it wasn't my place to ask. I mean, if she just asked. And so I, I said I'd help her because she asked for help. And he makes this unfortunate mistake. He says, you know, you know, I always saw her out in the yard doing all the work, you know, and none of the kids would ever help her. She's the oldest. And I felt sorry for her. And the minute he says this, the prosecution hits on it. it was like, oh, you felt, oh, you you lonely black 
dude felt sorry for this white one. Oh, you felt sorry for her? And the racism just kicks right the fuck in for every white person in the courtroom except for, like, Atticus and the children. And he just, you know, Tom Robinson just kind of shuts up after that. So they give closing speeches. Atticus's speech is very like well-known as kind of like a huge like defining moment for his character. He pretty much makes the the argument obviously that African American people are not different than white American people and that it makes a lot more sense the story that Tom Robinson has told than it does their story because of the physical evidence and not just because of the physical evidence but when you think about if what tom robinson says is true then they're acting exactly the way they would oh she tempted a black man and in our racist ass fucking worldview that's just the lowest thing you can possibly do she's trying to burn all evidence of her what all of her culture has said to her is unforgivable because it's a lot easier for all of us racist assholes to accept that a black man tried to rape a white girl than it is for us to accept that a white woman might have looked at a black man and had been sexually aroused, essentially. And he's like, and that's the fucking world we live in, and it's not a fucking cool-ass world. Like, all men are created equal, whether or not any of us like it or not. I don't care what you think. In the eyes of the law, black people have the same rights as white people. We're in the 30s right now, remember. Technically speaking, he is correct, and that's what he's trying to say, is that in culture, we can't police, like, your thoughts. He's like, but in the realm of law, we can police justice, and justice dictates that you find Tom Robinson not guilty, basically. So after this, he finds out, they take a recess after the closing arguments. Atticus finds that the kids are there. Uh, And so they go home for supper. They come back to see what the, the final verdict is. It takes forever. The jury is out super long. And everyone is kind of like, oh, maybe that's a good thing. Because, like, maybe that means that they are really seriously, like, weighing this. They're really considering both sides. It takes a long time. Unfortunately, the final conviction is that Tom Robinson is guilty. And this is just utter devastation to, I mean, Scout is devastated because she can just kind of like tell that obviously she's on her dad's side. This is her dad's side and he lost. So she is sad. Dill, at one point during the trial, when, like, the prosecutor was talking to Tom Robinson, he was treating Tom Robinson so horribly, basically, that at one point, like, Dill has to run outside because he, like, gets so upset that he, like, throws up, basically. And Dill is just like, I just don't understand. Like, they're so hateful. They're so mean. I I don't understand. Um, And Dill and Jem are essentially on the same page because Jem was convinced the whole time he was watching the court like every time like Atticus like caught them like oh on like oh the physical evidence supports what my dad is saying and it doesn't support what that like Jem was always like oh he, he fucking got him and we fucking got him there like Jem was convinced because in a rational world Atticus won that argument Jem was like oh no he won 
And so when it came back that Tom Robinson, the conviction was guilty, Jem is just gutted. He struggles really hard with it because he knows it's not fair. And he cannot reconcile that with the world that he lives in. He doesn't understand why, you know, like if all this stuff he learns about God and, you know, church and what good people are and not good people are, he just doesn't understand how these two realities can coexist, basically. After this trial, you know, Atticus is like, you know, it's not over. We're going to appeal. We're going to appeal. Um, he gets an appeal in law, so that's our next journey. And as the time goes by after this, we see the colored community, the black uh, and people of color communities in the area are express their deep gratitude to them. Even though they are the poorest of the poor, they don't have anything to give him. They all like give him multitudes of their stuff they give him like shares of their crops they bake him food and give him you know supplies and he's just like tell them that they can't ever do this again like they can't afford to give me this stuff that I'm very grateful for and I you know I'll accept it because I understand why they're giving it to me but please tell them just to not do it again because they need that stuff for themselves and yeah. um, it's a very kind of moving moment. We also learn in this time that Bob Ewell, now that he's quote unquote one, has a new enemy and it's Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, according to him, has made him a fool and Bob Ewell has now decided that Atticus deserves to be punished for his actions in that courtroom because he did not side with his fellow white man and that's a problem so he is now threatened Atticus and Atticus's family Atticus really kind of blows it off he's like uh you know people like Bob Ewell they're just all talk he blew his gasket now that he's blown his gasket it's you know he's gonna peter out you know we learn that because we happen to know like all of the like neighborhood people who are in the jury we learn through conversations after this, how close the vote was. That actually the reason that the vote took so long before it was conviction was because a Cunningham, if we remember that name from the lynch mob, from you know the kid that is Scout's peer, a Cunningham was in that jury and that Cunningham was the last holdout on trying to put Tom Robinson as not guilty. And Atticus is, you know, very much like, this is great. This shows progress. This is a good thing. It means that, you know, people can learn and they can grow and they can change, basically. Unfortunately, things just do not go well after this. Um, everyone is trying to kind of move on with their lives. Aunt Alexandra is trying to kind of set Scout up to keep being a lady. They have like a tea time, but the tea time is super just excruciating because all the women want to gossip about is just how fucking dumb Atticus was basically and how black people are savages. And it's, it's just the worst to try and sit through. And it's the first time that we see Aunt Alexandra in particular being affected by this kind of talk because she just is holding on to the edges of her seat trying to not smack people basically for the type of shit that they're saying. And it's funny because Miss Maudie is also here in this tea time and Miss Maudie doesn't hold herself back. Miss Maudie kind of like calls a bitch out at one point and it's like, you know, you're talking shit about the person whose house you are in right now. You eating his food. So you're going to be talking shit about this dude? 
I hope that like cracker doesn't like choke you on its way down. Basically, it's like Ms. Maudie's like response to this. We learn during the same day, unfortunately, Tom Robinson has tried to escape prison. And while he was trying to escape, he is shot and killed. And this is really hard. Atticus is devastated. He wanted Tom to not lose hope. He was really hoping that the appeal was going to get them even more traction. And this has just devastated everyone. So Dill and Jem actually go along with Atticus because when Atticus hears about this, he's like, I have to go tell Tom's wife. So they go with Atticus to tell Helen Robinson And the whole town is really affected by this. And it's actually a little bit strange because, you know, like there's a newspaper article and there's essentially like what an op-ed would be where that guy who from before was kind of like sniping for Atticus that night on the lich mob, he publishes what is essentially an op-ed. And it's basically a pro-Tom Robinson op-ed of like, this is some fucking bullshit. This fucking dude is dead and he was an innocent man essentially. And, you know, like we're awful people (laughs) yeah, (laughs) basically. And it's really sad. At school, you know, now Scout is old enough, she's learning about things like what's going on across the seas, because we're going on into the late 30s now. So where are we in America's time? Oh, that would be, you know, just like the beginning of World War II. So, the horrific uh, depression? That's yeah, where we're at. She starts learning about Hitler and about how Hitler is being absolutely evil to the Jews. And Scout very logically goes, how is this any different than what we're doing right now to the black people? (laughs) She's just very blatant about it. And no one can answer her question. (laughs) Everyone is just like, because she's not wrong. Yeah, Yeah, because she's not wrong, obviously. Um, No, she's absolutely right. During this time, Ewell is working in the background in the town. He has harassed the judge that was presiding over the case because at one point the judge made him kind of look like an idiot. Uh, I forget what it was that the judge did, but it's a funny moment. So he harasses the judge at one point. He harasses Helen Robinson every day she's walking home to the point that her employer goes up to the Ewell residence with his own gun, basically, and says, like, if I catch you following my employee again, I'm going to come over here and we're going to fix the fucking problem, basically. (laughs) And because Ewell's doing this, Aunt Alexandra and everyone around Atticus and his kids are like, Uh, he threatened you too so uh are we gonna take uh this dude seriously and Atticus is like no 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 he's gotten his revenge he's not this is just not you know I just I don't this isn't worth my time yeah essentially like he can't grasp that this has hit Bob Ewell to the core of who he is enough that he would bother trying to hurt Atticus basically So we've gotten to Halloween. Scout is in a play. She's in like a Halloween pageant at school. She is a ham. She's like a Thanksgiving ham. 
You know what I'm saying? Like a spiral looking ass ham. So they like make her costume out of like chicken wire and like plaster. And she just, it's hysterical. She's just embarrassed. She's like, I'm not fucking walking around looking like this. And everyone just thinks it's hysterical. So the night of the Halloween pageant, she has to be in, in the thing, but Atticus doesn't go and neither does Aunt Alexandra. And Jem is like, oh yeah, I'll take, I'll take my sister there. And they're like, all right, Jem, you know, watch out for your sister. So he takes her to the pageant. She goes, but she's like taking off all her clothes because it's so hot in her freaking suit. And she's just like super like embarrassed about it. So at one point while she's there, she like takes off her shoes she is so embarrassed by like what happens at the pageant that she refuses to come out until like almost everyone has left at this point. And Jem is like, Scout, come on, like, let's go. And as they're walking out, she's like, oh, I forgot my shoes. And he's like, no, 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 we're, we're going to get your shoes later. Like, it's, it's too late. Like, let's just go home. I'm tired. But it's super late at this point. So she is like in her undergarments in this ham hock suit, walking home with no shoes. And as they're walking home, they're on their way. Right about the time that they're getting into their neighborhood, Jem is hearing things that is making him upset. Um, he's like, what the fuck? I think we might be getting followed. And Scout is like, you're just trying to scare me. And Jem is like, Scout, shut the fuck up. I'm, I'm actually serious. Like, I think we're getting followed. And essentially right about this time, they get attacked. So Scout can barely see in her costume. She can hardly see out of it because of like the nature of how it's made. And so when this happens, you know, they're getting attacked. She can tell they're getting attacked because she's hearing Jem scream in pain and Jem is telling her to run, but she can't see what's happening. So she starts trying to run, but she has no idea where she is. She can't see where she's running. She like trips and falls and like rolls a little bit. She like ends up like running into a tree she's on the side she's trying to get out of her costume but she can't she's hearing Jem struggling with somebody and he's crying out in pain and at some point you know someone grabs her but she can't see who it is so she's now screaming and like her suit is kind of getting battered and then suddenly whoever holds her drops her and finally gets the thing off of her. So now she's in her undergarments. By the time she's out of her costume, she's looking up. She can't really see anything. It's super dark. But she sees in the distance off towards where her house is that there's a figure that is holding what she thinks might be her brother in this figure's arms and is running down the street. So she follows this figure. She doesn't know who it is. By the time she gets to her house, her father and everyone in the house is in hysterics. You know, what happened? What happened? And she's like, I don't know. I, I, like, I literally don't know. I have no idea what just happened. Where is Jem? And they've called the doctor. And Jem is, you know, in the back and Scout is just frantic. So the doctor comes. The doctor, after being in there, says, Jem is going to be okay. His arm is broken or probably broken like I'll have to examine it better tomorrow or whenever but like uh, it's broken essentially so after the doctor leaves the sheriff shows up because they've also called the sheriff at this point and so the sheriff comes and is like uh what what the hell <laughs> what the hell is has happened uh here 
And we learn when the sheriff gets here that Bob Ewell, the sheriff saw on his way over here, is lying dead in the Radley's yard. He has a knife sticking out of him and he's dead. And so Scout tells the sheriff what she could understand of her story. She, she couldn't see much. So the sheriff goes back out into the front of the house and he brings back her costume, which he found out at the area. He's like, this is the costume you're talking about, right? And she goes, yeah. And he shows it to her father. And you can clearly see, based on his descriptions, the indentations and there's knife jabs. So essentially, we learn basically as the reader, Scout doesn't understand what this means, but Bob Ewell essentially was trying to knife her. And the only thing that saved her was the fact that her dumbass costume was made of chicken wire and plaster and was so like thick and armor-like that it couldn't get through. Her costume saved her life, basically. So she's like, yeah, I I just, I don't understand what happened after that. You know, it just, it just happened. And I saw that figure bringing Jem here. And where did that figure go, by the way? And Atticus and the sheriff are like, kind of awkward all of a sudden. And they kind of look off to the corner and Scout turns around and realizes that this entire time, she literally didn't notice it because of like all the kerfuffle (laughs) that there's a figure that is leaning in the farthest corner of the room in shadow and this man is very thin uh he's very pale as she looks over he kind of leans just a little forward so he can be seen a little more light and she realized suddenly oh my god this is boo radley so the sheriff and atticus introduces scout you know is like this is arthur radley very obviously and you know don't call him boo Uh, And she's like, nice to meet you, Arthur, Mr. Arthur, you know, and he doesn't say stuff, but he kind of smiles at her. He nods at her. So outside, the sheriff and Atticus walk out and Scout walks out there with them and with Boo Radley. And the sheriff and Atticus start arguing because it becomes clear suddenly Atticus is trying to argue with the sheriff about what he's going to do about his son. And the sheriff is like, what are you talking about? And Atticus is like, you know, he's just a boy. You know, he clearly did this in self-defense. Like, they'll, they'll have to see that he did this in self-defense, right? And the sheriff looks Atticus dead in the eye and is like, Atticus, your, your son didn't murder Bob Ewell. <laughs> Who Radley murdered Bob Ewell. Your son didn't do anything. Your son was lying on the ground in shock because he got his arm broken and his head knocked in. Boo Radley fucking murdered Bob Ewell for your children. And Atticus is kind of shocked and taken aback at this understanding. And he's like, oh, oh my God, well, we have to, you know, we we have to, we have to tell everyone. We have to, everyone has to know what, what arthur has done he's saved my children like he's a hero he's he's a fucking hero of this goddamn hero yeah and the sheriff is like yeah we're not we're not doing that We're, we're absolutely not doing that and atticus is like what are you talking about like this is the truth they have to know the truth and the sheriff just kind of looks him straight in the face and he says you know essentially what boils down to arthur radley likes to live in his house by himself with no one bothering him. What the fuck do you think is gonna happen if we tell everyone the hero that he is? Everyone's gonna be at his doorstep. 
trying to shake his hand, trying to talk to him, trying to give him shit. Suddenly he's going to be in a limelight that he doesn't fucking want to be in. I'm not going to do that to him. I'm just not. And yeah. it, it, unfortunately for you, sir, I happen to be the sheriff. <laughs> so I get to decide <laughs> whether yeah. or not I bring charges up yeah. or what the official story is going to be. And you know what I decide? Bob Ewell fell on his own damn knife. It is a very much like, and then he ran into his knife. He ran into his knife, ten, knife times. ten times. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> like, and he is like, Bob Ewell clearly in the kerfuffle fell on his own knife very tragically killing himself. And that's the story that I'm going to be telling the community. And that's for sure the story that you damn well better be telling the community or I'm going to be here and kick your ass basically. Yeah. <laughs> and Atticus Finch is just dumbfounded and the sheriff leaves and Atticus is just eternally grateful to Boo and Scout is just like everything magical about the universe has suddenly come to life for her. You know, Boo Radley is sitting right next to her and he's saved her life. And so she escorts him back to his house. And as she's standing on the porch of his house, she kind of looks back out at the neighborhood and she realizes standing on his front porch, she can see the entire neighborhood and she's looking everywhere and she's like, here's where Gemini did this. Here's where Dylan and I did that. And she realizes that the entire years of her life, he's been able to see everything. You know, yeah. he's been there watching and he knows them. And it kind of comes full story for her. So that night she goes to bed and she kind of begs her father to tell her an older story that was her favorite. He's like, you haven't listened to this story in a long time. And she's like, I don't care. I want to listen to it. And you realize as the reader that he's reading her to sleep to a story of a man who everyone believed was evil and weird and odd, but he ends up being nothing of the sort. And that's how To Kill a Mockingbird ends. Ta-da! It was a good book. I loved it's it. It's pretty wonderful. It's truly a just insane ride from start to finish uh when you put yourself in the setting of the 1930s in alabama and the deep fucking south of america in this day and age it's just the things that the characters are going through there's a reason that atticus finch is just a staple of american literature is kind of like a a hero in terms of championing racial justice you know and civil rights and equality they made a a movie two years after it got published they made the feature film to kill a mockingbird gregory peck starred as atticus finch he kills it it's a great movie it's a really good performance by peck and he and uh, harper lee became very close because of this story, Atticus Finch was one of his most dearest roles to him, and he loved Harper Lee. They were they were very close, and it was very very sweet sort of kind of bookend to the character that she fashioned after her father, basically. Yeah, it's a really good story. I know that I've seen the courtroom scene with Atticus Finch from mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird a bunch of times. It's, every a, ta- it's an iconic scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, t- every time something about racial inequality comes up, all of these things that we're still dealing with hundreds of years later come up. It pops up, you know, in the social media feeds like, hey, this is from, you know, the 1950s. Like, how about we fucking listen to it? And yeah. 
you know, it falls on deaf ears a lot of times, but yeah, what are you yeah, there, uh, yeah, it's a it's a very iconic scene, and Gregory Peck delivers it beautifully. And you have to remember too, she wrote this speech. the The closing speech for Atticus is basically an entire chapter of the book. Like a fourth of it is something else, and then the rest of the chapter is Atticus's closing speech. And it's just this rousing, moving speech about the nature of justice, how it's supposed to be blind, you know, his color of his skin doesn't fucking matter. It's a wonderful speech. And she wrote this, remember it's published in 1960. It's maybe a year or two later where Martin Luther King Jr. is, you know, standing up giving his I have a dream speech you yeah. know, it, it's it's that time where these types of speeches mattered in America. And she wrote one that became an iconic speech all about how awful we were being and how we were blinding ourselves to what we were saying we upheld. You know, Atticus's famous ending words is, in the name of God, do your duty. In the name of God, believe him. Yeah. No, that was great and heartbreaking and... You're welcome. It's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. Here to break your hearts. Yeah, accurate. Okay, are you ready for this? Uh, I don't know. I know that your hair is up, which makes me think of several movies, and I'm, I'm scared to think of the movie that I would be excited Late. for, but there's a bunch of movies that I would be excited for, so I just don't Lay even know. I'm me. just in a tizzy. Lay it on me. What movies do you think my hair could possibly mean? Oh my god. You didn't pick literally my absolute favorite movie, did you? That's I don't think based so. on Okay. Oh god. Okay, then I don't know. I I don't know. I wouldn't I'm, be able to guess. I'm assuming your guess is Spice World. No. It's my guess. It's not. Okay, what was what was your guess? My favorite movie literally of all time, I could quote it from start to fucking finish is Clueless. Oh, no. I did not okay. not choose Clueless. Okay. Oh, that is a fucking great movie. Like, it's a Le- wonderful movie. Legitimately my favorite fucking movie of all time ever that has ever been created. Uh, no. All right. Oh, my God. What is your movie? Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Okay. So we have finished our beautiful trek uh, back to the 1930s into shitty racist Alabama. And mm-hmm. now I'm going to send us forward. We are going to go forward 29 years into the future. And we are going to speak into a world that seemingly has no racism because there was absolutely none in this movie. And it's just a fun, witty jaunt that Disney takes us on into the future. It's a Disney movie. Through the 21st century. It's a Disney Pixar movie? No. No? It is a Disney movie that follows a young teenage protagonist as she struggles to save her family and the International Space Station. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking Xenon! about the one and only Xenon. Girl of the 21st century. See, I got to build it up just so I can get this reaction out of Sam. I'm sorry for all of you that had to suffer through that buildup right now, but I needed this I'm reaction so from right Sam. <laughs> I'm going to continue until we start doing books and movies that are the same, (laughs) like Harry Potter and Harry Potter. I'm going to choose these like Disney Channel throwbacks. So I'm like, I'm actually going to cry. I'm so excited. (laughs) This is like, I knew Gregory Smith. So like, 
okay, no one knows this about me because why? And no one cares about this because no one knows who this is. But I am this fucking weirdo that when I was a kid, okay, Harriet the Spy came out and Gregory Smith was her guy friend. I forget his fucking name in that movie, but he's the like son, the like boy that like has to like, you know, do all the cooking and stuff for his dad. That's Gregory Smith. And ever since mm-hmm. Harriet the Spy came out, I like put my eyes on Gregory Smith and I was like that. I, oh my God, that's my soulmate. I'm going to marry that man. I became obsessed with Gregory Smith that moment. And he really wasn't like in anything until fucking Xenon Girl of the 21st Century after Harriet the Spy, where he's the fucking love interest in this movie. Yes, he is. And he's older. And I was like, this is my man. I've been waiting to see him this entire time since fucking Harriet the Spy. And he was in Xenon. And like my entire soul like exploded because of how like hot he was and I was just obsessed <laughs> with him and then right after he was in Xenon like just a couple years later he lands fucking CW's Everwood and I was like Everwood's my fucking jam and I like watched Everwood religiously until it was canceled because I have been obsessed with Gregory Smith since he was a child I'm so fucking happy we're covering this movie yes so as you can tell by Sam's excitement, uh, Gregory Smith is in this movie. If you couldn't tell, he was one of the heartthrobs of the 90s. Uh, the less, one of the lesser known heartthrobs of yeah, the 90s. Yeah, he was, he was kind of, he was kind of like the, the quirky, like indie heartthrob. Like while everyone was watching Gilmore Girls, they were like following Jared Padalecki and then they were like following um, the dude who plays uh, Jess and Gilmore oh, Girls. Oh, I stuff. love him so like, much. He's amazing. He's Milo Vinton. I'm not saying. Ventimiglia. I ain't I saying he's him. not amazing. I'm just saying that, like, also on the CW, like, at the same time as, like, Gilmore Girls and stuff was going around. Yeah, Everwood it was Everwood. Was happening, and Gregory Smith was the fucking dark prince, Hamlet, the amazing man of Everwood, and I was just all fucking about it. I could not get enough of him. So I really liked Gregory Smith. I didn't see him in anything. I mean, I remember him... A tiny bit in Harriet the Spy, but not mm-hmm. not as much. Um, I remember him very clearly from Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. Yes. And then the next time I saw him was in The Patriot with Mel Gibson. And yes. Mm-hmm. That's he one of my favorite the, movies of all time. So he was great that, in that. Uh, that dies in the beginning. Yeah. Right? That's him. Yeah. I think so. I'm pretty sure. And then when Everwood finally came out, I was over it. Like I didn't even think. He wasn't oh even my on my God. radar. So I was, it was a very, literally the only reason I found out about Everwood was because I was like, I, we had gotten a computer at that point in my life. And so I could use the AOL, the like search engines. And so I searched everything I fucking could about Gregory Smith all the time because I was obsessed with him and learned about Everwood (laughs) because of it. Any of you guys out here who are listening to this and are under the age of like 27, sorry that you don't (laughs) understand these references about how horrible it was to live before like ipads and cell phones were commonplace when back yeah back when you had to dial up internet and just fucking burn out your ears like i'm sorry (laughs) that you don't understand these references but 15 minutes later of all of those noises you were connected to the internet yeah there was (laughs) back in the olden days 
before we had a <laughs> supercomputer in our pocket, we used to have to use AOL, America Online, and it sucked. And oh, man. that's where we got our news and our information. And yeah, so it was a fucking thing. We could go on and on for days. So I need to shut up. But I'll just <laughs> I'll just say just just as a parting thing, the AOL chat room function the AOL Instant Messenger, before it became AIM and separated from AOL, you had to be on AOL to use AOL Instant Messenger. Oh, man. It was just, you were the coolest of the cool. That was where yeah. you went online to talk to your fucking friends. You made your background on AIM purple and your font was in... 36 size and it was bolded like monster movie font and like it, yeah, was, it was the most amazing the first, the first coding you ever did oh yeah okay so xenon girl of the 21st century was a disney channel original movie i think disney channel still does that but because of streaming services and how everyone gets their media now a lot of people don't really watch it's a little disney different. channel necessarily yeah um, they still but, do the same idea, but they don't launch it like on a Disney channel like they used to. Yeah. You, so back when we were kids in the late 90s, early 2000s, Disney was kind of in a rut. They had hit their plateau with their animated movies, like the ones in the theaters, and they weren't really just, sure where to go. Yeah. So, I was going to say, so just so pause for a second, like for anyone who's kind of confused, this is still a meme today. Like, you know what Lifetime movies are? Or you know what, like, yeah. Hallmark movies are, where the channel itself makes the movie. It's not made by a huge, like, like 20th Century Fox or, you know, MGM theater. Yeah. You know, it's not made by one of those things, but the, the channel itself is producing and making those movies, and it's just for that channel. Um, it's, it's, like a it's like a Netflix them. original movie. Exactly. It's the same idea as like a Netflix original or, you know, an Apple TV original or a Hulu or an Amazon Plus Prime. original. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. That's exactly it. Was that like the channels themselves, if they were big enough and had the, you know, the production value to be able to pull it off enough, they would make their own movies that were exclusive to their channels. So yeah. like, you know, sometimes you couldn't even buy disney channel movies like they oh just you still can't old. they don't exist Only had to you can buy them like on amazon prime you know to yeah. like stream but you can't like get like physical, physical copies copy. of them or anything yeah exactly so that's kind of like what it was so that's why you would watch channels back then was because if you didn't watch them you literally could not access the exclusive content that they were producing it just literally was not available to you there wasn't things back then like torrenting or you yeah. know like illegally fishing and downloading stuff like that didn't exist so if you were someone who was super into disney and you know the disney movies that they produced that came out in theaters were one thing it was an entirely different monster of them producing a movie on Disney Channel. Yeah. So if you wanted to watch a Disney Channel movie, you needed to watch the Disney Channel, see what the programming was, when they planned to air it, and if you wanted to be able to have a copy of that freaking movie, you planned out when they were going to air it, you put a fucking VHS into your VHS player, and you recorded that shit while it was playing live, because otherwise yeah. you had no 
control over whether or not you could access that movie. You could only watch it whenever they played it on their channel, and that was it. Like, yeah. there was no other way to watch it. Yeah. So Disney had kind of hit a plateau around the time that Mulan had come out. They kind of recognized that their animation studio was not struggling, but didn't have a lot of new ideas. There needed to, to be a change, like, yeah. Directions, there needed to be a change for their animation, but their channel was doing really well because they had a bunch of these different shows that were based on their animations yes. on their yeah, channel. Yeah, shows were, were fire back then. Yeah, Yeah. so they had like the Aladdin show and the Hercules show and all these different shows based on their movie properties. And they were like, okay, well, how about we put something on our channel, like make a movie specifically for our channel. Mm -hmm. And with that, they also concluded the age range of like where they started to lose kids. Mm -hmm. And it was really apparent that the puberty and like early teen age is where kids just stopped giving a fuck about Disney. So to do something about that, to reconcile that, Disney came up with the idea of the DCOM, which is the mm-hmm. Disney Channel original movie. If you have listened to this podcast throughout, I have reviewed a couple <laughs> of other DCOMs, or we have talked about DCOMs in yes. different Yeah, we've definitely talked aspects. about them for sure. <laughs> in different aspects. But the DCOM came to the Disney Channel in the late really late 90s, early 2000s, and they would release a new DCOM like once a month, Mm -hmm. and it would be a live action movie that followed a teen doing something. Like a preteen teen teen something. A preteen teen Mm -hmm. doing something that was interesting enough that it would bring in teen viewers. So a lot of the movies had to do with sports. There was like a surfing movie, Johnny Tsunami. There was Mm -hmm. um, like- Even the stuff that didn't have to do like- it, it was all about what the teens and preteen-like types of genre struggles were happening. They realized yeah. suddenly that they didn't have content that catered to that middle range of kid, yeah. uh, you know, of kid identity. They had the late adolescent streams of, like, the Disney Channel stuff that was, like, for, you know late teens and beyond and then they had the younger disney kid stuff they didn't have something that fell in that niche of the preteen early teen struggling type of stuff so they created this entire market to channel and and target that niche area that they had been you know essentially ignoring up to that point and it was all you know protagonists that were you know boys and girl protagonists they had boy protagonists girl protagonists uh, that were you know age ranging from like 13 12, 13 to maybe about 15 and 16 would be like the yeah. latest. They would For those of it. you, okay, High School Musical. I know many of you, even if you're younger mm-hmm. than I am, you know what High School Musical is. You've enjoyed High School Musical. That was a DCOM. The first High School mm-hmm. Musical was a Disney Channel original movie. It yes, followed it a bunch long. of high school kids in high, like in the early ages of high school, trying to mm-hmm. figure out their place in life, where they wanted to be, you know, all of that. And that's really what all of these movies had to do with. What was really cool about the DCOM is that while telling this story about being a young teen or being an early teen, it also was able to relate it to a bunch of bigger life aspects that a lot of people just would not at the time talk to kids about 
Like, yes. yeah. So there are decoms that have to do with intense racism and facing, you know, getting over prejudices. Oh, yes, the color of friendship. That oh, movie. The I color of friendship is so time. fucking good. Yeah, but there's there's all these different things, and you know, you you get the cheesy like, oh, there's a boy and he's kind of cute, and I kind of like right. him. Like, there's always that. That's never right. going to go away. But they did deal in these movies a lot with racism. They dealt with sexism. They dealt with, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the struggles that teens deal with, that young teens deal with in wanting to be heard as right. an equal. Like wanting to, be, adult- wanting to be seen as an equal, but still being like, nah, you're just a kid. Right. They wanted to be introduced to these type of topics, but adults wouldn't treat them with you know, like they were old enough to be able to even learn anything about it. So it kind of took on this role of like introducing the that middle range of preteen slash young teen into these are some of the serious aspects that you deal with more often as you get older. And they yeah. wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't dive hardcore into it. It's not like you were watching like Roots as a Disney Channel original movie yeah. or something. You know, that wasn't happening happening but they would touch on those themes surrounding the like teen angst stories and it really did shape preteens you know and young adolescents in exposing them to those type of things that adults were just refusing to talk to them about and especially if you're younger than you know katie and i are at this point then you know if you're super young listening to this you're probably right in that age range. First of all, don't ever say any of the words that I say. Um, I love you and uh, uh, your parents are awesome and please don't ever say the F word. But also, um, like, <laughs> but also like, bad words are just a social contract. <laughs> so fuck the system and say yeah, what you want. But also like as you grow older, you're going to be surrounded by, you know, bad words anyway. So like you might as well just get, get it over with it now while I'm telling yeah. you about classic literature. Anyway, like, you know, that was kind of the vibe. That was the vibe. You remember that vibe or you are living that vibe right now. If you're a listener who is in that preteen age, that vibe of like, I know that there's more to the world and there's more to the shit that's going on around me than what everyone is telling me, but they refuse to be honest with me. They refuse to give me the details that I want to know about. Yeah. They Took that they, and they it's took like that entire feeling and they tried to like make to these movies about them about it. that exactly yes so as you can tell the decom is very near and dear to my and sam's heart um <laughs> this particular decom xenon the girl of the 21st century came out in january of 1999 sam had just turned nine years old and i, I was the ripe young age of 11 so <laughs> it was really i was the perfect age for this like the girls in this movie oh, yeah. or the main character in this movie is 13 so it's like right around <laughs> the age where i was and she was dealing with the struggles that all of us were dealing with. The main struggle in this movie that Xenon is dealing with is her parents not recognizing that she, she might, she could be right. Yeah. So not listening to her, like she basically she's figured not out. just a child anymore. She's a person. Yeah. She has her own thoughts. And those thoughts yeah. might differ from adults in your life. And you might not be wrong, basically. 
Yeah. So this movie takes place on the International Space Station in the year 2049. That is currently 29 years in the future from where we are now. And according to the movie, the space station was finished in 2022. So I know we have the International Space Station being worked on right now. I don't know how close it is to being done. But I know that it's nowhere near what they had in Xenon, the girl of the 21st century. Like, it's not going to be that good. Absolutely but not. we had a lot of hope, okay? In the early 2000s, we were real <laughs> dumb, all right? We were promised flying cars and all sorts of things. A and we society that can shit. dream. Listen, we, we, were, we grew up on Back to the Future. <laughs> yes. We, we believed all the shit in the Jetsons was going to happen for real. So <laughs> give us a little break. But... Anyway, so this movie takes place in 2049. Xenon is your run-of-the-mill teenager, the same as any other young teenager, 13-year-old. You know, she sleeps through her alarm. She's always late to class. Her best friend is her whole entire world. And she's completely obsessed with her favorite band named Microbe. Like, if you were alive at the time, if you were around in, like, 1999, you replace the word microbe with like Backstreet Boys or NSYNC and that's oh, the yes. equivalent. Like your love for the them, that's what it is. Equivalent. Or if you were, you know, if you were a teen, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, it would have been like what One Direction and Justin Bieber. Like, Absolutely. you know, there's yes. always mm-hmm. right now, if you're a teen right now, it's probably BTS and Billie Eilish. Yes. Like, you know, there's yep. always that artist. That is that just iconic just for your speaks, preteen era. Yeah speaks to your generation that's that's the one so microbe is that for xenon that's important for later in the story so microbe Mm -hmm. i'm so excited i get to sing it uh she fights with her parents just like any teen does for freedom and trying to get her parents to understand that you know just because she's a kid or was a kid and she's now a teen just because she's young doesn't mean that she's wrong doesn't mean she doesn't understand what's going on doesn't mean she doesn't see the different things that are happening and she sees it in a different way than they do so they have a really hard time accepting that what she's saying is true because of that and because you know she's 13 she gets into a lot of mischief around the international space station you know she's sneaking around getting into you know like vents and stuff to get to different like restricted Skipping areas her hologram lectures all that yes. good stuff yeah you know doing all the things that like 13 year olds do because they have authority issues or whatever yeah So the person who basically funded the entire International Space Station, Parker Windham, is coming to the space station to basically do a checkup. He wants to see all the research that they've done, all the different things that they've completed. He wants to make sure, basically to check up on his investment. He wants to know that the money he's putting in is coming up with enough results that he's happy with that he can keep funding it. And all the adults on the space... It's a progress like, report. Yeah. All the adults on the you space... Need to oh, shit. Report. Like, we, we have to make sure this goes off with a hitch. You know, they've been having, like, a couple of little issues here and there, like random power failures, because at this point in 2049 that they're in, the space station is now 27 years old. So, you know, they mm-hmm. continual maintenance, all these different things are happening. So Parker Wyndham comes to the space station and he comes with his lackey sidekick assistant guy named Mr. Lutz. And immediately, as soon as Xenon meets them, she's confused and like, uh, these guys kind of seem shady. Like, I don't, what the fuck? 
So he like winks at her all weird and there's just a weird interaction when she meets him the first time. There's that weird vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And she just gets this weird vibe and is like, okay, something's not right here. So day goes on. You find out that same day that uh, her favorite band, Microbe, is actually going to play the first rock concert in space. And they are holding a contest. And the person who makes something about Microbe, it can be like a physical thing that they send to them, or it can be like a letter or a poem or whatever. It's like a contest to see... Who, yeah. who's the biggest microbe fan is nowadays we would have like a fan art contest you know what i'm saying yes, that, like yeah my that's fans, what it is basically submit to me your like your you know your fan vid or your like drawing of or your poem you or whatever interpret. yeah yes so she enters that and all her friends enter that you know they all want to win the prize which is to dance on stage with protozoa or with microbe at this concert in space on their space station so they're all fucking excited like hella hype hey the biggest band on earth is coming to the space station to play we love them like hell yeah let's do it she enters the contest and this shady dude shows up and she's like what the fuck am i gonna do what's going on Mm So the results of the contest are announced and Xenon is announced the winner. Uh, She made like a doll of protozoa that she like made herself and they thought it was the fucking coolest. So she's going to get to dance with them. She's like, that's awesome. Hooray. I'm so excited. And then like Mm -hmm. five minutes later, she's like, what the fuck are these shady dudes up to on my thing? So she follows the lackey, Mr. Lutz in the middle of the night. She follows him and finds out that he goes to the international space station's main computer and he's dicking with the main computer. And she's like, the fuck it's the middle of the night why are you touching any of these things and she sees him mess with a tiny like disc so think about if you're old enough to remember cds they were like the size of your face (laughs) these discs are like the size of a quarter so in 2049 you know how we've moved from like hard discs or floppy discs to like teeny tiny micro sd cards okay that's pretty much what's happened Same idea, but it's discs this time. So instead of dealing with a giant CD, she's dealing with this teeny tiny micro disc. So she sees him fucking with the computer. He puts in and takes out a tiny micro disc and then leaves. And she gets stuck in the room because she can't remember the code to get out. Then the security guards come and she gets in trouble. Like, what the fuck were you doing in the main computer? That's not a place for a child. Number one, you don't have clearance to be here. Number two, like, it's the middle of the night. Number three, like, all these different things. All of these things. Yeah. And the captain of the ship, Commander Plank, is like, what the fuck? If your parents don't take care of this, I will. Like, if they don't discipline you properly, I will discipline you and you will be fucked, basically. So she tries to tell her parents, like, no, I was there for a reason. I was following Mr. Lutz. He did something. I don't know what he did, but he was messing with the computer. You know, this guy's fishy. We need to take care of it. And her parents are like, you know what? It's too much. You're too crazy. This, like, insane conspiracy theory you've got going right now is too much. It's going to affect our research. If he doesn't give us funding, like our research will end and that's a problem. So we're going to ground you. And when we say ground, we mean literally to the ground. You're going to earth. You're going to go live with your aunt Judy on earth. (laughs) And this is the end of the fucking world for her, right? She's lived on that space station since she was a little kid. Her entire life. 
Yes. Since she was five, all her friends are there. All her family is there. You know, she doesn't remember eating regular food, you know, because everything in the space station is cultivated differently. She's not used to any of it. Right before she leaves, her best friend gives her a present. Her best friend is played by the one and only Raven Simone. Yeah. Her best, her best friend's name is Nebula. She's fucking amazing in this movie. I love her so much. But her mm-hmm. best friend gives her a gift. It's an earring that is made of a mini disc because that's what they do. They like dumpster dive basically in the ship's okay. like trash chutes and pull out all these cool things. And then they create like jewelry and all sorts of stuff because they're kids and that's what kids do. Right. So we see the scene, Nebula's walking through the hall where Mr. Lutz dropped the disc and picks up the disc. And we find out that the disc that is Xenon's new earring that she has on Earth is the disc that Mr. Lutz used on the ship. So they send her to Earth and she ends up on a space shuttle with Mr. Wyndham and Mr. Lutz because they have to go back to Earth to do whatever they were going to do. So she ends up back on Earth. She goes to her Aunt Judy's house and tries to explain to Aunt Judy like, There's some weird shit going on. I don't know what's happening, but here we are, and hopefully nothing bad happens. So she's on Earth. She's struggling to make friends. She's trying to figure out, you know, whatever. And eventually she figures out that Mr. Lutz is trying to find her to get the disc that she has as her earring. Gregory Smith, Smith, whose name (laughs) is Greg in this movie. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. They were like, we're not even going to try. Just call him Greg. Yeah, so he helps her come to this conclusion that what the bad guys were after was actually that disc that is her earring. They have their friend, Andrew. He is like a computer hacker, and he puts in the disc, and he spends all night trying to figure out what this disc is. And eventually he figures out that it's this horrible, horrible virus. Like, basically, you put it in, and it starts slowly eating away at the code in your computer's mainframe and slowly 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 it's making this bigger hole and bigger hole and by the time he wakes up like he's had this disc in his computer the whole night and by the time he wakes up in the morning his computer is freaking the fuck out and eventually it just like blows up like it just like dies and there's smoke coming out of the fence and everything it's fucked up So he comes to the conclusion that this is an intense malware problem and he recodes the disk to become a fix for itself. So all of the little holes that the little bug is creating in the program, he makes it so that it repairs itself. So now the problem is no longer did they, didn't they do this to the mainframe. It's like, fuck, they did this to the mainframe of the ISS. We have to get up to the space station and put in this program that we've made to fix it so that the space station doesn't just fall out of the sky and kill everyone that I love. Right. This is really heavy shit. If you put this into a computer in your house, you know, the worst thing is exactly what happened. The computer explodes, but you put this into an entire space station that runs on its computer system. Oh, okay. Well, if the mainframe of the space station computer system blows up, that space station suddenly isn't flying anymore. That space station is suddenly, you know, not affected by the magnetic fucking fields that it's creating via its computer systems. And now all of a sudden, oh, You have this huge, entire, large freaking space station that has a society, a town, basically, upon it. 
that just yeah. is going to now crash to freaking earth like well they'd all be dead as soon as those computers shut down because there's been right. no regulation would, of the lack would, of oxygen right the but that uh, but then that's what i'm saying too like the fact that that space station is so huge that wouldn't have just affected them like yeah the best that they could hope for is that by that time the space station is so far up into the atmosphere that potentially earth's gravitational pull doesn't pull it back down to earth and maybe it just continue spinning off into space but that is super ludicrous i'm pretty sure the space station is down enough into the atmosphere that it would fall back down to earth if it was not continuing to be afloat like it would just naturally drift back down because the earth is the closest body that's next to it it would just start being a part of that gravitational pull and it would eventually crash into earth and kill a bunch of fucking people (laughs) yes so greg and andrew are doing a bunch of digging trying to figure out why why would they do this to the space station that mr windham has been pumping money into for decades right and eventually they are able to hack into the official like quarterly reports of the Wyndham company, basically. And they figure out that Wyndham has been on a downward decline. Their money Uh, has shot way down. That dude's basically going broke, even though he just promised to invest like $500 million into the space station or whatever. Oops. So the kids figure out that the plan is to destroy the space station from the inside make it look like an accident, and then Wyndham's going to claim the insurance money, basically. So he's just doing this for a giant insurance fraud, which is literally billions of dollars at this point, a space station that's been active for 27 years. Like, the amount of insurance money that he would make is just insane. Astronomical. Pun intended. Boom. Yes. So Xenon has this disc now that contains the cure for the virus that they set in motion on the space station. And she's video chatting with her parents, trying to convince them like, hey, this is what's going on. I don't know what's going on on the space station, but this is likely to have happened. And I have the cure. And her parents are still, even though they know that all sorts of bad shit is happening on the space station, they're like, no, you're just crazy. Like, you just have it out for the guy. Like, he was a good guy, whatever. Which is, I will say this forever until the day I die. If your kids are telling you something, you should believe them. Listen. The worst case scenario is they are wrong and okay, you have to pay for the consequences. You have to say sorry. Like, yeah, you have to say sorry. But But like anybody who tells you that you're an asshole and like you deserve to like be ruined because your child who you deem to be credible told you something important, if they like vilify you for that, there's a fucking huge ass problem there then. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the entire core of it. Absolutely. Yes. Believe your children. Like, not only in this instance of Xenon, where her parents should have listened to her, like, oh, snap, like, are you sure that that's what that was? They didn't even give no. her a second thought. They were like, you're Especially just Especially she's the one that's down on the ground now. You sent me yeah. down on the ground. I'm yeah. down here. I'm learning shit that you're not learning, you know? Yeah, she was like, you're just 13. It doesn't matter. No, but believe your kids, okay? If they tell you that something's wrong, you need to believe them. If they tell you that some other adult is fishy or weird, fucking believe them. Like, save your kids. 
So her parents don't believe her and she's freaking the fuck out because she knows that if that space station shuts down, everyone she loves is going to die. So her and her friends are determined to get her onto a space shuttle back to the International Space Station. So Andrew, he borrows his dad's car, which is a Volkswagen Beetle, like the newer Volkswagen Beetles, but is essentially a Tesla, like it drives (laughs) itself. Like you put in the coordinates, it drives itself. So the kids put in the coordinates for the docking station and try to make it onto this cargo ship that's going to go into the space station tomorrow. But they miss it. Like, it is flying off right as they end up at the thing. So the bitch girl in this movie, there's always a bitch one. Any movie where there's a girl protagonist, there's always a female antagonist who's a bitch. Like, a girl who's... The key characters. The woman, the girl protagonist, the BFF, Mm -hmm. the love interest, the bitch girl. And that bitch girl could or could not end up being your ally and a good person or could be proven to be for sure, for sure, bitchy. But she's always present. Absolutely. Which is honestly really sad that we're able to make these descriptions of female characters because it's so prevalent. That everyone just, yeah, exactly. Everyone just accepts that And everyone just knows. Yeah. Yes. Everyone knows. I understand what that means. Yes, and it's prevalent in literature, in movies, in Mm -hmm. every form of art that you will ever see. That's how it is. If the story is about a female, there's going to be another female somewhere in that story that is jealous of her, who hates her, who's going to try and ruin whatever it is that she's doing, which is really damn sad. Women, you should all be helping other women forever. Exactly. Don't tear each other down. That's the patriarchy. Don't listen to that I don't shit. Care. I don't care if that woman has been your arch enemy for 20 years of your life. If she comes up to you because she has a fucking period bleed or whatever and she needs to get to the bathroom to put her tampon in, you fucking walk behind her ass and you fucking shield her from everyone seeing exactly. the fucking period stain because women stick to fucking together. Yes, women help women. Don't be a bitch. But in this movie, that's not the case. And there's a girl who is in love with Greg and she's upset that Xenon exists and Xenon came and she's threatened that Xenon's going to take Greg away even though Greg was never hers. So (laughs) they're standing there watching the cargo shuttle leave to go up to the space station and she is like upset because they missed their window to get rid of xenon and then she says wouldn't it be a shame if the space station blew up when microbe was there you know everybody loves microbe on earth and at the space station everybody loves them they're a worldwide sensation so xenon is like oh fuck like you're a genius great idea bitch exactly you're kind of a bitch to me but that is a damn (laughs) smart idea let me give you a hug and then tomorrow we're gonna sneak into the presentation where microbe is getting ready to board their shuttle to go up to the space station they go in tomorrow i'll catch that fucking spaceship And, and that's the shuttle that i'm gonna get on so the kids devise this plan They crash through the security gate, basically, of the Wyndham announcement, because Wyndham is the one that's sending Microbe into space to do the first rock concert on the space station. And they break in. Xenon goes to Protozoa, the lead singer of the band, and she's like, I'm the girl who won the contest. Like, look at the little doll I made. You have it right here. Like, that's me. If you want me to dance with you, I need to get up to the space station. It's, you know, super, super important. 
Right. And he's like, all right, that is you. Fine. Go get on the plane. He stops security from taking her hostage because Wyndham basically is like, you have all the right. evidence that's going to incriminate me. We need to get rid right. of you, basically. But Protozoa is like, I'm literally a celebrity. You will yeah. do exactly what the fuck I say. Yeah. Yes. So Protozoa uses his celebrity to convince the guards not to mess with her. And she gets on the plane. Then Protozoa gives his speech or whatever, his press conference, and then he gets on the plane. Then Aunt Judy pops up and she's like, where the fuck is my niece? niece. What did you do with my niece? Yeah. And Wyndham's like, uh, bitch, she ain't here. She hasn't been here. And Aunt Judy's like, the guard at the gate said she was here. What the fuck? And then Wyndham looks at the shuttle that's about to leave and he's like, oh, fuck. She's on the protozoa <laughs> ship. So so Wyndham and Mr. Lutz and Aunt Judy all like book it to the shuttle and they make it just in time right before the shuttle takes off. And um, Xenon looks back and realizes that they're all there. So she opens up the cargo hatch or whatever of the shuttle and it makes Mr. Lutz and Mr. Wyndham fall into that hatch and then she closes it. So they're stuck in, in the shuttle. And she explains everything to Aunt Judy, like, this is what's going on. You know, I need to get here and here and here, and I need to do this. Right. Then they get to the space station, and the space station is just a shit show. Like, all the different systems are shutting down. Everything has been going bad. Everything is going bad. This virus is eating through everything. They've got literal minutes to save the day. And Xenon sneaks through the ship she's trying to you know not make any waves she just wants to get to the main computer so she can save everything and she bumps into commander plank and commander plank is like the fuck are you doing here you're supposed to be on earth and the then, commander of the entire spaceship yes i don't know he's if the, we, he's we the captain his name before yeah exactly yeah, and then Mr. Wyndham and Mr. Lutz pop up. They got out of their cargo hatch and they pop up and a screaming match ensues between Xenon and Mr. <laughs> Wyndham and Lutz, like <coughs> flaming each other. And Commander Plank is just like, the fuck, guys? Like, I don't have time to deal with this. Like, the ship is getting all fucked up. Like, we need to do something. And Wyndham, who knows what's going on, is like, no, I need to get the fuck out of here. I don't want to be here right now. I need to get right. off this space station immediately and commander plank for whatever reason doesn't find that as suspicious he's just like i've got bigger things to deal with like right do what you got to do basically and walks away xenon gets put into his office xenon and aunt judy together because they were together they get put in his office as like a detention and she tries to use her little communicator device essentially a tablet to call (laughs) her BFF Nebula on the ship and be like, hey, we're in the captain's quarters. Like, we need to be let out. You know, come save us. And whatever they did on Earth to fix her tablet so that it could actually communicate with the space station has made it so that she cannot communicate with other people on the space station while on the space station. Yeah. So she calls Greg and Andrew and is like, hey, you guys need to call Nebula. Let them know we're in the captain's quarters. Come save us or whatever. So Nebula pops up. She saves them. They get out and they head toward the main computer. All of this is happening and the computer is counting down one minute until all system failure and 30 seconds until everyone's going to die on this spaceship. Yeah. Yes. All this shit is going down. So Xenon runs in. She gets there at like the 30 second mark. There's like 30 seconds left. She puts in the disc and everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? You're just a kid. And she's like, guys, like I've been saying this from the fucking beginning. I promise you I can fix this. 
So she puts in the disk and she starts putting in the password and she keeps fucking up the password all the way down until like three seconds left. And then she gets the password right. And she gets the program sent in. The computer shuts down as it hits zero. It completely shuts down. And then for like two seconds, you're just waiting with bated breath. Like, did it actually work or are they all going to die? We're we're falling to the earth right now. (laughs) Yes. So then the computer reboots itself, like turns back on and seemingly fixes itself. Like whatever program Andrew had put on that disc is slowly fixing all the holes that the previous bug had made. So it's fixing everything. Then Wyndham and Lus uh, bust into the main computer room to be like, what the fuck is going on, basically, because the computer was counting down and everything, and they're like, what's happening? And the commander is like, "Uh, assistant, arrest these men. And they get arrested, (laughs) like, fuck those guys, they're gone. Yes. Xenon saved the day. Everyone's like, hell yeah, Xenon saved the day. Her parents are finally like... God damn it. I should have listened to you. You're my kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, aunt Judy, who has continually listened, like she's the cool aunt, basically. Everybody's got a cool aunt. When you're a teen, <laughs> you're going through that time where you don't want to listen to your parents, but you want to talk to somebody who's an authority figure. And your aunt is typically, there's always a cool aunt. Right. There. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like almost everyone has a cool she's aunt. She's always younger than the mom. Yeah. She's always cooler. Exactly. Yeah. She's like the one who goes to rock concerts and like, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't give a fuck really about what anyone else thinks. Everybody's got <laughs> one. I don't know how everyone has one because not every woman is like that. But somehow I know everyone it's has so fucking crazy because I'm the actual literal cool aunt. Not to chew my own horn or anything, because like obviously I'm super cool. But also I am the cool. <laughs> <laughs> like no but i am the youngest of my siblings so like yeah my fucking nieces on my mom's side like hannah is in college now and like that's insane to me i'm like what's up bitch like here i am here's your fucking cool aunt like the minute you don't want to fucking deal with your mom like this is my house <laughs> i'm about to come visit you you're gonna be the dd because we're gonna have a great time <laughs> yeah so anyways her cool aunt was like come on guys like she was telling the truth the whole time y'all are fucks and her and commander plank who had both previously never found love end up falling in love you know just some weird side like there was no all of a sudden it's the end everyone has to find love yeah everyone's got a happy ending because it's a disney movie so Mm mm-hmm Xeon saves the day, and to end the movie, basically, it ends on this concert of Microbe. Like, they're finally playing their show on the International Space Station, which is broadcast to the entire Earth. Like, globally broadcast, everyone's seeing it. So, they finish playing a song. It cuts in, like, at the very end of one song, and Protozoa, the lead singer, is like, hey, so this is where we would typically bring up the winner of our contest, and we do all these things, and you guys know, but after you save a space station, dancing with us is, like, nothing. Like, so who cares? So Xenon has requested a couple of things. So basically, she asks that... The first song was dedicated to Greg because he's watching this on Earth. Like, and Greg she's, has something to do with it. And she's, <laughs> and I like remember on, that. she's on her tablet in the concert, like video chatting with fucking Greg, like talking right. to him about the concert that they're both watching. Like she's right there and he's watching it on whatever screen in his house. So she has the song dedicated to Greg. 
and protozoa starts singing uh, supernova girl and then in the middle zoom 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 make my heart go boom boom my supernova girl oh my god yes. And then in the middle, you know, there's always like a break in the middle of a song right before the bridge where a band can just keep playing while the lead singer just talks. So there's a break and then it hits that talking point and Protozoa is like, and for her second wish, she said she didn't want to come dance with us, but she was giving her best friend, Nebula, Nebula. the chance to dance with Protozoa. And Nebula's like, are you fucking kidding me? She's like, no, I'm not kidding. Like, go up there and dance. So Nebula runs up there and gets to dance during the rest of Supernova Girl. And that's how the movie ends. Like, Commander Plank and Aunt Judy end up together. The parents believe and they have an improved relationship. Like, they're going to trust their daughter more now, even though she's kind of mischievous. Like, they need to trust her instinct. Nebula loves her, you know, best friend. Xenon and Greg are boyfriend and girlfriend, seemingly. Like, they kissed right before she left Earth, and they're video chatting during the concert, so you can assume that they're kind of dating. Wyndham and Lutz, they're in jail. Like, basically, everybody gets a happy ending, and yeah, we get the concert in space, and it's fucking great. And what I will say about this movie is... Okay, I haven't watched this movie since it came out in 1999. I probably haven't watched this movie since like 2002, I would say. I can't believe I was nine like, years old when this movie like came it's out. Been, it's been a good 18-ish years, at least 15 for time. sure. Like I know I haven't watched it since I got to college. So the fact that I can still remember all the words to this song is... That's- I literally just something. instinctively sang that song. I was all zoom, zoom, zoom. Yeah. Wing a hot it, go, boom, it boom, should tell you something about how good the song is. <laughs> like this song is catchy as fuck. And I was I was trying to listen with, you know, judgy ears. I was trying to be judgy about yes. it. Like, is this song still good? Would it be or, a hit today? Or am I just nostalgic because I grew up listening to this song? Like right. and honestly, if you listen to this song supernova girl as like a throwback dance hit it's totally it like amaze if i played this on a 90 station i would 100 percent believe that this was a hit Absolutely. in the 90s even though Could it wasn't like, this was just from a disney you know, channel movie when did 98 degrees release this single i don't remember them releasing this single you just like yeah. wouldn't even question Yes. And it's insane that I still remembered all the words. Like, as soon as the song started, I was like, oh, oh shit. shit. I know oh, this shit. song. Here we are. Exactly. Okay. So for years and years, because me and a lot of my friends are DCOM fans, like we would always do the chorus, like the zoom, 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 even my heart go boom, boom, my supernova girl. Like, that's commonplace in my conversation with my friends. That's pretty much commonplace. But all the other lyrics are not. And yeah. somehow they're still somewhere the in my brain. The minute they play, your, your and mouth I was, just moves I with was them. Just yes. like, it didn't make any sense, but it was mm-hmm. so good. So I, Muscle final, memory. Yes. You guys Truly. should all watch this movie with your kids. If you have young kids, especially ones that are like teens, tweens, you should yes. definitely check this movie out with them. It is a little corny because you have to remember that this was oh, yeah. made in this was the made end in end of the nineties. It wasn't even two thousand. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So this movie was made in nineteen ninety nine, and they were trying to portray basically like the year twenty fifty, right. essentially. And a lot of the technology that they were showing is technology that we currently have, but is better than what they're showing 
Yeah, it's just, it's either a different format or it's a different type of device, but it's all essentially like the same type of stuff that we would use today. Yeah. Yeah. So the kids, like the kids on earth, they were using like a laptop computer to hack whatever the disc was. So the difference was that it used a tiny disc, but that laptop was still like- Today we would use a USB drive or, you know- That laptop today was still three inches thick because it was 1999 and that's right. what you know that's what laptops were in 1999 it was a three right. inch thick laptop and it was like small as fuck and fat but you know you kind of have to <laughs> but it could do all this stuff <laughs> it could do all this it could do all this crazy stuff but you had to kind of yes. you have to kind of let your imagination just like let go of it i know yeah. some kids are not going to be able to let go of those right. problems and inconsistencies with this film. Like, oh, it's supposed to be just too much. It's supposed to be 20 years in the future, but this clearly looks like the past. So it'll be a little hard for some of them, but I think a lot of kids will understand and right. be able to relate to Xenon and her angst towards her parents, like the problems that she was having with her parents and the problems she was having with authority. Like, it's a very common teen feeling that i think disney did a really good job at capturing and if you haven't ever seen this movie i highly recommend it i would say if you didn't grow up watching this movie like many of the movies that i review cringy all if you did all decom movies are cringy if you didn't really grow up with them exactly because they're so very much like the moral type of story the moral that it underlies the story. Like last episode, we did a couple of um, Grim Tales. And honestly, Disney is sort of kind of like the Brothers Grimm of our millennia, so to speak, because they tell stories and essentially, yeah, the decorations around those stories kind of change. And so they'll decorate them differently or they'll change the gender of the protagonist or the antagonist or whatever it is. But they are literally always about the same thing. All of those decoms, especially when we were growing up, were all in the same type of vein as like a Brother Grimm story was. They were all trying to like put a fucking message out. They were all trying to get that sort of like moral of the story uh, thing. And that was the thing that was pushed at the expense of kind of anything else. It wasn't about character development. It wasn't about, honestly, sometimes even story development. It was more about can I in an hour and 45 minutes put this moral into this movie and make it make sense and then dress it differently whenever I fucking want to Absolutely, (laughs) and that's a decom (laughs) absolutely yeah so you should check out Xenon and you should definitely read To Kill a Mockingbird for sure. It is still applicable today. The Atticus Finch legal fight for the black man's freedom and his ability to be innocent is still right. a plight today. That is a problem across the United States. And yes, we're going to wrap this up before we get into too much of a diatribe about anything. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs> thank you so much, Susan Dorda, for making our beautiful artwork. You can find her work at www.susandorda.com. S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. Uh, I'm fucking drunk. Drunk uh, AF. If- Yes, if you have anything to talk to us, either about To Kill a Mockingbird or Xenon Girl of the 21st Century, or you want to suggest something for us to read or watch, you can tweet us at Allentown Pod. 
you can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents. I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening and we love you. And as always, it's been real and it's been lit. Keep it lit. Real lit. Ooh, shit.